0: Hello, and welcome to the Nodacast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. Your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our, and I think I got this right this time, our ninth episode of the cast entitled the things I do for love an analysis of a game of Thrones brand Two, the game changing moment that I personally, that is Jeff realized that a song of ice and fire was not your typical fantasy fair. Uh, as we say in every single podcast, our spoiler warning. So we'll be talking about all five published books, the three Duncan egg novellas, the histories interviews and the wins winter sample chapters, as well as game of Thrones, a TV show, anything and everything. So last week we didn't do, or rather two weeks ago, we didn't do any thanks, but we got a bunch of great comments about our Ari episode that we wanted to highlight. Uh, and we wanted to thank everyone who's been obviously listening along with us and uh, listening and, and commenting too. It's been really great getting you guys' feedback on everything. It's uh, it's something that really kind of um, uh, thrills us as doing this podcast. I mean, we are very early into the, into the podcast itself. I know it may not feel as much, but we are only nine episodes in, um, but we wanted to highlight a few folks that we uh, we really appreciated their uh, their input this week. Uh, we have one from Jash on Twitter, who is at 7.34. He said, an interesting contrast to Sanders trauma and loss of innocence at 12 during the sack of King's Landing is Podrick at the Battle of the Blackwater. Pod is roughly 12. Yet for him, it's presented more as a heroic, selfless act when he stabs Sir Manon Moore and saves Tyrion. I also dig the similarities between John 1 and Arya 1 in that they both end up in tears over not being satisfied about the roles that this world lays out for them. It's a neat little element that showcases further how alike they are in contrast to the rest of Clan Stark. Uh, that's an excellent point about how John and Arya are similar. They even look similar because they are the only two of... Uh, Ned's quote-unquote children um well Arya is obviously Ned's Ned's child but John is not necessary well John is not um but they they look like they have the stark look and it's really cool that they also have a a bit of similarity in their personality and and being outsiders in the world that's that's around them so that's uh, something to be on the lookout for as as we're progressing through
1: yeah that's a and then also sorry go ahead oh I just wanted to yeah I agree that the I like the Sandor Pod parallel. I mean, they're both involved in kind of the themes of true knighthood and true squirehood, respectively. So it makes sense to have some things in common there. And uh, yeah, the John and Arya parallel is definitely strong. And it kind of goes hand in hand with some of the Bran Sansa parallels you can see in this chapter that we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. But you oh, can yeah. definitely see little little pairings emerge thematically already among the Starks.
0: Oh, yeah. There's there's a great um, thematic parallel between the two. And it's also clear, too, that they're the, the two siblings, quote-unquote siblings, that are that are closest um, to each other. And the one, they think about each other constantly, and it becomes something that animates John very strongly in, in his Dance with Dragons arc, which uh, you guys will be hearing later this week. Uh, a lot more about that as we do our uh, Dance with Dragons is a better book than a Storm of Swords episode, which will be coming your way on Thursday. So... Or Wednesday. Let me think about that. Wednesday. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. Um, also on Twitter, Jimmy, who is at Jimmy Mac 42, asked us a really interesting question. He says, love the deeper look at gender roles and the beginnings of analysis on religious authority. Just wondering why you left out that George R. R. Martin said that Arya was his wife's favorite and that he promised to keep her alive into the last book, if it's true, question mark. So, uh... I did a little research in this, and uh, the there is a source for this, so it's not necessarily. It, I, I for a while I thought it was just kind of apocryphal that that George had said this and it had never come up. But I actually, did a little bit of research about it, and it is kind of a paraphrase of what George said. So it comes from a 2005 "So Spake Martin," where it was reported that George uh, said, "Paris has proclaimed that Arya cannot die." Uh, exclamation point. No, Paris wasn't there at this convention that George was at, but he mentioned it when someone said that he's not allowed to kill Danny. Um, so that's the source for it. And to be honest, when I to be honest, when we were doing the the writing for the RE episode, it had escaped my mind. I had I, I knew about it, but it was as we're writing it, sometimes you kind of get that kind of tunnel vision. You're just so deep into Aria 1 and going through the books um, and, and looking at her fate that you kind of don't necessarily, you kind of leave some things out. So we really appreciate like uh, bringing things to the fore that we, we might leave out. And please, please, please continue to do that. Um, my, my response to that is that I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that George is being totally serious Uh, about that it may be that paris had said this uh but i don't know that that will necessarily mean that Arya will survive but you know maybe that that is a bit of evidence for the idea that Arya may make it through the series if his wife has a a a compelling interest in the in in Arya surviving you know it is something that came up kind of recently in a uh, interview from this past summer where uh I, i think it was paris who told george that he has to finish a song of ice and fire as a series, so that uh, you know, Paris is is kind of like us, and that she's a fan of the books. Um, George uh, does talk with her about the books from um, things that I've I've read and, and have heard. Actually, George R. R. Martin say this at a uh, Balticon in 2016 that he relies on her for uh, advice and ways that they can, um, he can improve the story and uh, he asks her for feedback, things like that. So it's very possible that he may take his wife up on her demands that Arya cannot die. Uh, I don't know that he'll necessarily divorce her, which I think is another thing that I've read that people have said that Paris has said that he will, that she will divorce George if if if, she, if he kills Arya in, in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, that might be a bit more apocryphal, but you know, it's something to, to consider as we're, as we're going through that some of these uh, extra textual things, which we do try and integrate into the podcast, um, may have an impact on, on how the story progresses.
1: Well, I think Paris might just be our biggest ally in the fight to get T-Wow in the, <laughs> uh, in the Spring. So bless her. <laughs> bless her is what I say. Uh, we bless got her. a great email from Greg Q. I just wanted to read one, one paragraph of it here. Uh, I love Arya, but every time she stabs a Frey or a Marin Trant, and Maisie Williams gives that creepy, detached smile, I'm disturbed and worried for her, not basking in her triumph. That is why I think she's doing because organically, that's where the story is taking us. In her obsession, she's mostly erased her own name, Starkness, etc., to gain entry into a cult that promises to teach her how to better serve Death. But even so, she's not learned to respect Death at all. She's a loose cannon that the House of Black and White cannot control. Which, yeah, I mean, that's it's hard to disagree with the uh, the faceless man kind of taking the themes of death and the general kind of morbid pall of Arya's storyline and ramping it up to 11, because that's that's their whole thing, even more than any of the terrible people she encountered earlier in the story. Uh, I don't entirely agree that her starkness is gone, because she does have that whole needle as Jon Snow's smile monologue, and specifically right. says the many-faced god can't have this, which I think is a hint that, while they're certainly influencing her, she's going to kind of snap back to starkness. But, it, it yeah, it, it does... It is it is tempting for her that the House of Black and White promised her or release from pain, that all she has to give up is her identity. And she can stop right. hurting so much. You know, she is, but that means giving up both her list and needle and a lot of things she still really cares about, so ultimately I think she's gonna reject it. But I I do like that as a temptation for her in her arc, which I know a lot of people don't like the the Bravo's chapters a lot, but you know, it's usually called wheel spinning. I love the world building and the location of it, but I think it's underrated in terms of Arya's narrative. I think it's designed to bring her to the absolute brink of all the kind of themes and challenges she'd faced earlier.
0: Yeah, and uh, um, Greg brings up a great point in that she's a loose cannon. The House of Black and White cannot control her. Uh, the reason why they why she's a loose cannon, they can't control her, is uh, in my opinion, specifically because of her Stark identity and that she's not going to leave. Uh, she's not going to depart Arya of, of House Stark. She's always going to be Arya. She's not going to be Cat of the Canals or Mercy forever. Um, these, these identities that she assumes in the House of Black and White uh, are, are transitory. They're important for crafting her arc towards what I believe is going to be a Westerosi um, uh, endpoint for her, whether it's going to be her death or, or her living. I don't think that she'll be in Braavos forever, uh, and i do think for for better or for worse the show showed us a bit of george's vision in that i don't necessarily think that what we saw in season 6 is going to come to pass uh, blow by blow but i do think the overall trajectory uh, that's, that that arya is going to leave uh, the house of black and white and leave bravos and return to westeros uh, specifically because of her her stark identity and her connection to characters like jon snow which is something that uh, some of the other folks who we've we've cited before have brought up so uh or rather the people that we we thank before josh and uh, jimmy brought up about that um so yeah so that's uh the keep your comments coming email us tweet at us send uh Emmett a a message on tumblr we we read every single direct message email tweet uh response reply quote tweet anything and everything we do try and read and and do enjoy the interaction and the the sense of community that we're establishing as we're progressing through a game of thrones so thank you all very much for listening responding and uh keep keep it coming absolutely so yeah so uh i i i, I noticed this seemed like pretty short all and all things uh, in terms of our introduction, but I am just so freaking excited to talk about this chapter because this is like one of my favorite chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And might it's close to what being one of my favorite chapters even in, in all of A Game of Thrones. I, I mean, I don't know about you.
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's basically flawless and sets up a staggering amount of important information going forward politically and magically and just in terms of Brand's personal character arc. It's got some of the best imagery in the series. It's got some of the best world building. It's very poignant. It's very suspenseful and then it just shatters your heart into a thousand pieces at the oh end. Oh my gosh. Yes, it, it does. It is it is a roller coaster so, ride to use a cliché.
0: Yes, it is uh yeah, definitely a roller coaster ride where you're kind of like going down the the steep decline and and your heart is in your throat the entire time, um, but so this chapter is Brand's second chapter, and I'm going to do a. Uh, I, I tried to make this as quick as possible, but it was not necessarily the quickest synopsis that I've ever written. But here we go. So here's the quick plot synopsis of Brand two before we get into Emmett's in-depth analysis and look into the chapter itself. So the the chapter starts this way. How Stark, Baratheon, and Lannister are preparing to depart Winterfell for King's Landing. They are leaving the next day, but before that, Robert calls for a hunt. He's a uh, he loves hunting, and that's his, his one of his passions, uh, as well as fucking. Uh, the king, Ned, Rob, Joffrey, Tyrion, and many in the king and lord of Winterfell's retainers are off hunting for boar, but not Brandon Stark. Too young, Bran stays behind in Winterfell along with the women, Jon Snow, and Rickon, who is too young. Bran considers the journey ahead of him. At first he was happy to ride out with his own horse uh, instead of the pony, but his excitement sours as he thinks that what he'll about what he'll leave behind, especially his pony. More than that, Bran knows that when he leaves he'll never climb the walls and towers of Winterfell again, and this is something that is uh, crucial for Bran is that he loves climbing. They it, they talk about how Bran knew learned how to climb before he knew how to walk. So Bran decides to climb the walls of Winterfell one last time before everyone leaves the, leaves the castle and heads to King's Landing. He recounts the times that he was caught climbing and how his mother and father had tried their best to keep him from climbing. He recalls old Nan telling stories of a boy climbing and being struck by lightning, and then Maester Lewin dressing a clay doll in Bran's clothing and flinging that doll from the walls to show Bran what would happen if he were to fall. None of this deters Bran from wanting to climb, however, and climb he does, up a tree across walls and towards the first keep. The first keep, a broken drum tower in Winterfell, is one of the older structures in the castle. Bran reaches the first keep and hears voices, a man and a woman, talking openly of Renly, Stannis, Littlefinger, Lysa, Jon Arryn, and most sinisterly, the threat that Bran's father Ned Stark poses to them. Quote, Lord Eddard has never taken any interest in anything that happens south of the Neck, the woman said. Never, I tell you. He means to move against us. Why else would he leave his seat of power? Unquote. Brand Bran decides to try and find out who is speaking. He wraps his legs around a gargoyle and swings his body down to find none other than, Cersei, than Queen Cersei and a man, who remains unnamed but we know to be Jaime Lannister, naked and having sex with each other. And then they see him. In the chaos of the moment, Bran loses his grip. He falls. He tries to grasp a stone, misses, and then he catches another with his other hand. Swinging from the tower, Bran looks up and sees Cersei and Jamie above him. Jamie reaches down and pulls Bran up to the window sill. Bran grasps Jamie's arm, and Jamie pulls him up. Sir Jamie asks Bran how old he is, and then Jamie utters the immortal words that the <laughs> I have the immortal words in my notes, but it should be the immortal That's words. That's quite the Freudian slip there, well. brother. It is that. So Jamie utters the immoral and immortal words, the things I do for love. He pushes Bran out of the window and Bran falls from the keep. A wolf howls and the crows circle. And that is a Game of Thrones Bran 2, a very brief summary. That was beautifully done, sir. It's amazing just how much happens in this chapter. I mean,
1: there was no fat on that whatsoever. And like you said, it was definitely one of the longer... Uh, summaries so uh, there's there's just an intense amount to talk about so start digging a little bit deeper basically this chapter is everything we could love about A Song of Ice and Fire it's got this great character work with Bran this is his, his, his entire life laid out before you his innocence and the loss of it uh, the, the childhood that he's trying to leave behind but leaves behind in a much more brutal way than he ever could have expected He's trying to say farewell to everything he's ever loved and everyone he's ever known and can't bring himself to do it. And in his attempt to say goodbye, he he stumbles upon a scene that could not be more designed to shatter his innocence. Not just a sex scene, but an incest scene between uh, the powerful, beautiful people he's supposed to worship and trust. And then they violate that trust in, in one of the most breathtakingly horrible ways imaginable. Not just that, yes. though, this chapter is an excellent exploration of setting, getting into uh, Bran's monologues about Winterfell and how much he loves it and explores it and knows about it and all the different buildings and the walls and little weird details and all this amazing stuff that builds on the little comments we've had earlier mostly in Catalan chapters about how the castle is structured and its history and how it works. You get warm character dynamics with Bran and his parents and the story of him climbing and then begging him to stop. You've got uh, intense amounts of uh, suspense with Summer howling at him and then the tension of him overhearing Jaime and Cersei and getting close and are they going to catch him? You have a really vital political dialogue between Jaime and Cersei. This is where Robert's brothers are first mentioned. This is, uh, I think it's where Littlefinger is first mentioned, although I could be wrong about that. Yes, you're right, you're right. Uh, it's not the first time uh, Lysa is mentioned, but it's where we start digging into her motivations more. And we get to see the Lannister side of things, Where uh, up to now they've been kind of under glass and just kind of a mysterious removed threat. Now we start really getting into how they operate as a unit. And then we get uh, two of the most significant plot twists in the entire story. One is that Jamie and Cersei Lannister have a sexual relationship. And the other being that upon Bran discovering this, Jamie throws Bran from the window. And uh, our, our sweet Arthurian protagonist uh, has his dream of knighthood, the dream that Jamie shared and soured, taken away from him. So that's a lot to dive into, my friends. So let's, we're going to go, <laughs> yeah, go through each of those sections one by one and and uh, delve out what we can. So uh, this chapter begins with uh, Bran contemplating the journey ahead of him. Everyone else says the hunt left at dawn is the opening line. Uh, the, the king goes out, Joffrey, oh, you mentioned this, Benjen and Theon, Sir Roderick, uh, even Tyrion goes out, Bran mentions. Uh, Bran's left behind and he's, he's trying to say his far, farewells. He talks about... Uh, his, his dreams of, of becoming a knight in King's Landing. There's this great line I mentioned the Parallels with Sansa earlier, and this really stuck out to him. That stuck out to me. Uh, Their names were like music to him. Serwyn of the Mirror Shield, Sir Rhyme Redwine, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, the twins Sir Eric and Sir Eric. It's, it's very much like Sansa's worship of the songs and constant reciting of the the, the tales and the people. Hmm. You know, Sansa's whole Florian and Junkle thing that Littlefinger uses against her. Uh, you, you see that kind of uh, starry-eyed innocence uh, that is just destroyed by the end of this chapter, as, as this dream is taken away. This is—it's a very mean chapter, Jeff. Is what I'm saying. It, it's really—it it? It really hurts because because it's not just that I mean, Bran yeah, gets thrown; it it's that the whole chapter leading up to Brand getting thrown is about here's all the things Bran can enjoy because his his legs are not broken. Because he wants to be a knight, he loves climbing. He you know loves going all around Winterfell, learning its secrets, and then at the end of the chapter. It's all taken away. It's just. I don't. Yeah. I just. Yeah, okay. I, th- that's I think I might have to quit the podcast, Jeff, is what I'm saying.
0: Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> please subscribe on Patreon. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I promise I'm just kidding.
1: But yeah, what? It, yeah, that, that opening is, is so terrific. And he starts trying to say his farewells. And that's, that's that's just such a poignant scene when he, he starts crying and can't say farewell to anyone he's, he's loved because it's just too real. That's that's yeah that's 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 the part that really gets me. And I don't, I don't even have kids, Jeff. You you must have all all kinds of embarrassingly soft feelings about that.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't want to talk about them because my rep would be totally ruined forever if, if people knew that I had a I had a soft side. Jeff,
1: we've already destroyed your reputation. one of the co- most frequent comments <laughs> we get after every episode is, "What Jeff talks like a normal person? <laughs> <laughs> he likes laughs and smiles and what? what is, we never expected any of this."
0: I guess they expect me to like kind of talk like Sauron talks, you know, from the the Mouth of Sauron scene from the cut of, of Return of the King, like, but no, but no, I, I guess you know I, I am the banality of evil, like my voice, you know. So I think they expect Sorry, every I, word I, to be sarcastic. They expect the office space guy, basically, like, yeah,
1: we're going to need you to not recognize that Robert's Rebellion is for good reasons. <laughs> that's going to be great. I think that's what they expected. Instead, they get Papa Bear. What could yeah. be better?
0: Yes. Yes. No. It's 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 really. Um, it is a very striking chapter in that it does just shatter Brand's um, fantasy, like his 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 idea of, of becoming a knight, of climbing of of. And the other thing too is, and that becomes really um, striking too, is that Brand's ultimate goal is to become a knight of the Kingsguard, and that goal is uh, destroyed by the fact that a knight of the Kingsguard, Jamie Lannister, is the one that ends that goal uh forever but it's yeah it's it's just a it it is a brutal chapter and and i'll have a lot more to say about that in a little bit but i i don't want to interrupt you too much because i mean you have so many really awesome points that uh, that i want that i want to hear you delve into oh
1: hush but yeah it's it's just it's the it's the first big deconstruction right this chapter we've had shocking moments already we've had uh, important plot information but this is the first chapter that seems specifically designed as a statement about the genre that you have Bran raised on yes. these fantasy stories, basically of of great heroes who are heroes because they're they have a sir in front of their name and they're valiant and they wear the cloaks, and then one, then one of those characters steps out from the songs and breaks his legs. I mean that's that's a pretty I think yes. direct statement about uh, some easy comforting things in the genre that don't match with I don't want to necessarily say reality, but it's it doesn't. It's, it's, it's an incomplete story and it grants it grants knights and knighthood uh, a fair a, a pass that they don't necessarily deserve and I think that's one of the points yes. that he's making in this chapter is that no you don't you know just because you have a sir in front of your name doesn't mean that you necessarily save children on a day to day basis although right. Jamie's decision is complicated in that regard morally so as we'll get into later in the episode but purely from Bran's perspective <laughs> uh, it's just it it, it is, is it could not be more designed to break his spirit as well as his legs um, and it, you know, yeah. it's, it, we get reminders throughout this chapter just of how young Bran is. And I've, as I said, I think on the Arya episode, uh, one, one aspect of the series that is frequently debated is how effective it is that Bran, Arya, and Sansa are as young as they are. And of course, Martin intended to age them up with the five year gap. And some people have said he might have wanted to do that from the beginning. Of course, the show presented them as being at least a little bit older than they are in the books, uh, purely from yeah. appearances alone. Uh, I think Bran, I think those criticisms are largely on point for Arya and Sansa in a lot of ways, and especially as we start getting into the Winds of Winter without the benefit of the five-year gap. You have both Arya and Sansa behaving in ways that I think Martin definitely meant them to be more sexually mature by this point in the story and really doesn't know how to handle the fact that they aren't now. Um, But but Bran, for me, it's always been really effective that he's as young as it is. I think it completely grounds everything that happens in the story. It makes the bad things really effective. It makes it scary that he has as much power as he has because he doesn't quite know how to handle it, as we see with Hodor. Um, and and it, it means he can miss the point in certain poignant ways, like with the Knight of the Laughing Tree. And in this chapter, it works really well because he's 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 just he's saying goodbye to his childhood, and he can't quite do it, and he's he's still he's still kind of stuck in it. It's it's just so sweet when he's listing all the all the people he wants to say goodbye to. Uh, old Nan, engaged the cook, Micking in his smithy, Hodor the stable boy, who smiled so much and took care of his pony, and never said anything but Hodor. So that's you know now bringing up Hodor, as we as we know from the show and confirmed somewhat for the books that he's going to be a huge part of Brand's overall loss of innocence too. So he's he's yes. introduced in this context, and then I love this tiny little detail: the man in the glass gardens who gave him a blackberry when he came to visit. now such a perfect small little childhood thing like that Bran would remember oh, yeah. and be excited about like oh it was, it was so nice I was in the guards and he, like it's it's so it's so sweet Bran's just such a sweet kid he's a lot like Arya and then he makes friends with everyone and isn't making any discrimination based on class and in part that's because they're Ned Stark's kid. kids and Ned Stark brings his servants yep. to dinner and wants to hear about their lives and tells Rob that you can't make them die for a stranger so that's his his benevolent influence there but in, in Bran's POV it's this uh, very sweetly youthful innocent thing and then he can't he says he had gone to the stable first and seen its pony there in the stall, except it wasn't his pony anymore. He was getting a real horse and leaving the pony behind. And all of a sudden, Bran just wanted to sit down and cry. Like the horse is the symbol hmm. of his knighthood, right? That's his maturity. That's what he wants to be. It's his dream coming true. The, the pony is what you ride when you're a kid. Like he should be excited to move past that, he's telling himself, but he's not. Right. He's Because he's, it's, it's something he doesn't want to give up and it's something he still loves. And the horrible irony of this chapter is he's not going to give up any of it. I mean, he's going to give up the dream, but he's not giving <laughs> up Winterfell. He'll stay, but yeah, not in the not as, as Catelyn kind of guilt herself over. It's not in the way he wanted to. It's this, this the most horrific, uh, careful what you wish for scenario uh, imaginable.
0: Oh yeah. So one, one thing that kind of struck me when you were talking is that um, Bran's uh, personality was the the main reason why Ned wanted to uh, bring him south because. Uh, Ned has this whole uh, point in Catelyn's second chapter, which we we covered a few weeks ago, where he says that we we need to bring Bran. Uh, Bran needs to come with me. I know it's it's hard on you, uh, Catelyn, but the important reason why Bran needs to come is because there's bad blood between Rob and Joffrey, which is something we see in Jon's chapter, um, demonstrated when they're in the fighting yard. Uh, but Bran is there because he can bring peace because he's a, he's a kid. He's a he's a lovable kid, and he has no real. Enemies, And he makes friends everywhere he goes. And I think it's a great point that you have that Arya brand connection because Arya has the same uh, thing with, um, what's his face? The, uh, the kid, the uh, butcher's boy, Micah, Micah, Micah with, with Micah. Um, you know, Arya makes friends across uh, social classes and, and Bran, as we come to find out, has a, a, a similar uh, ability to, to make friends with everyone from the stable boy on up to Lord Wyman Manderley and to Roger Cassell. And you have all these these characters who really love this kid. And, and for good reason, he's, he's, a, he's a great kid. He's a very believable kid too. Um, you, you know, we, we talked about this in Bran's first chapter that Martin finds Bran the hardest character to write because of his age. But I, I wonder if that difficulty in writing uh, Bran Ends up having making Martin write more careful chapters and being able to write, in the sense of being um, more uh, deliberate and more and having to do a lot of editing and rewriting to make things believable and it ends up producing a better product in the long term. Uh, something we are going to again talk about in our Dance with Dragons episode a, a little bit uh, in in a few days. Uh, th- but one of the I think one of the points that I remember from this chapter being um, really interesting and i thought a, a great little piece of writing on martin's part is when bran sees jamie and cersei he thinks that they're naked and they're wrestling you, you know it's, it's one of those things Whereas, like as an adult you know exactly what bran is seeing you know he's we's seeing uh, jamie and cersei having sex in this chapter but to a kid to an eight-year-old kid who's not sexually mature and in, in any you know hasn't reached maturity in any way and has not uh, blossomed or, or whatever the, the, the phrase is for for the man, or is not a man grown? I think it's the, uh, the song of ice and fire phrase that that's exactly what a kid would think is that these two people are, 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 you know, they're naked and they're wrestling. Um, I think it's just terrific on, on Martin's part in terms of, of the writing side of it, but yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a, it's a great chapter. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that I personally love, uh, being the person who has started a website called The Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, is all of the uh, political dialogue in the chapter, because we actually get a lot of stuff that really kind of unwraps the political plot that Ned Stark is about to walk into in King's Landing a whole lot more.
1: Yeah, we. it's very convenient that since uh, Jaime and Cersei don't know that Bran is there, they're not holding back at all, so they can just kind of deliver exposition to us in a very believable fashion. In a uh, direct parallel to how Arya overhears Varus and Delirio later on in the book, uh, very explicitly talking about their plans because they don't know they're being overheard. And yeah, this is where uh, Martin... I mean, we've seen little bits of the larger political picture pop up. You know, Jon Aaron is dead. Robert names Ned the Hand. Lysa sends a secret accusation that the Lancers killed Jon Arryn. But this is where it's it's much more fleshed out in this conversation between Jamie and Cersei because we get the Lannister perspective we get the sense that they feel already surrounded by enemies and Ned is an unexpected new foe that they didn't plan to have to deal with and are really worried about because Robert clearly favors Ned above anyone else Cersei mentions that and mentions that she was counting on Jamie being the hand so she considers this a move against them uh, this is where it's, we get the first mention of Robert's brothers Stannis and Renly who will of course be uh, extremely important characters going forward and who uh, yep and this is kind of a recurring theme in the first book. The Lannisters were, were prepared to fight them. They were getting ready to fight them, Stannis and Renly. All, yes. all, men, all members of the Lannister family mentioned that they were preparing themselves to fight particularly Stannis and knew that as soon as Robert died, whenever Robert died, that this, it was going to be an open war between them. Uh, yes the Starks. as much as we think about the we might think instinctively about the War of Five Kings as the Stark versus Lannister War because that's kind of where the central drama is that's where the first battles are uh, in truth like the if you look at the overall outline of how we got to war what was brewing was a conflict between the Lannisters and uh, Robert's brothers and then the Starks were this wild card that no one expected uh, to be part of this scenario I assume both sides of that were maybe we're going to reach out to the Starks on 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 uh, on the Baratheon Brothers' part, but maybe not. Maybe they were just hoping the North would stay isolated, as they, as they so often are in civil conflicts in Westeros. Yeah. But Robert uh, naming Ned as Hand changed that game completely and guaranteed that the Starks would be major players going forward. So you kind of see that established in Jaime and Cersei's surprise that Ned was named Hand and uncertainty about what to do about him now.
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh, that line I read from the um, the synopsis. That, that Cersei says is that Lord Edward had never taken any interest in anything that happened south of the Neck. Never, I tell you, he means to move against us. Uh, she's not wrong. That's that's the interesting thing, too, is because we have to uh, look back at the Catla 2 chapter in that Ned decides to go south pers- because of the letter that, that Catla receives from Lysa, which reveals that Jon Arryn was poisoned by the Lannisters and that Robert is in danger. And that is the um, the moment where where Ned finally makes his just finally decides to to go south because you know in in the um, in in Eddard's first chapter he he's offered the hand of the kingship um, by by Robert but he asks for time to consider and think about it and there's no indication in that chapter that Ned is going to make a definitive uh, statement of yes uh, that's something that should be uh, kept in mind uh, in these early chapters in that there is a, a bit of debate. Uh, and that is both internal in Ned as well as external between Ned and Catelyn, and with Lewin taking a, a big role in that here, uh, or rather in Catelyn's chapter. Um, but yeah, though it's 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 very uh very interesting that the Starks are, are coming into it, but but at the same time I do, but I do feel that that Cersei's kind of being a little bit naive and not thinking that Ned wouldn't take a role in becoming Robert's hand because of how close of friends that Ned and and Robert are and how they grew up together and how they have this whole shared history. So I, I just I feel like that Cersei's not really grasping the the personal relationship dynamics that play such a huge role in in the northern politics and how Ned is Uh, very much interested in in that personal side of it. And I do don't know that she's the best conspirator. What do you think?
1: She's just not good at it. That's one of the interesting things about this scene is that neither Cersei and Jaime are particularly good at this. Cersei tries, but she actually, she keeps, she doesn't have much talent for it. She keeps being brought up short by her inability to consider any other person a human being. That tends to be Cersei's downfall over and over (laughs) again. She just doesn't get it that other people have thoughts inside their head. This is just a foreign concept to her and just it screws her over repeatedly and Jamie is, is uh, probably has a little more of a knack for it but he just does not care at this point in the story and you can see that throughout his dialogue in the scene he's just bored and he just tells Cersei look I'll kill whoever it is whoever it is we end up fighting whoever it is you tell me <laughs> to kill I'll do it and you can see that happens just repeatedly later in this book and all he wants to do is yeah. just have sex with her because it's later revealed in the Storm of Swords uh, he's extremely sexually frustrated at the moment because he didn't get to sleep with her you know, on the road north. Jamie, Jamie Lannister is just a prize. He's just a prize of a man. I can see, I can see why he's so popular. <laughs> um, clearly a lovely man, but that's, it's kind of an interesting note about this scene that it's, it's one of the, it's the first big conspiracy scene. It's the, you know, like we're overhearing the Lannisters and, you know, getting a sense of what they're up to behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, you know, you later realize the full extent of, of, of uh, their, their kind of slow motion coup here, but, it's not unlike the Varys and Illyrio. It's not skillful people. It's kind of sloppy amateurs, uh, which is an interesting. It's interesting in the context of Bran's overall fall from innocence theme in this chapter. Uh, that you know, we're they're, Jamie and Cersei are innocent is the wrong word, but they're kind of childish themselves in terms of how yes. they find this conspiracy and. You know, throughout the first couple books, there, I think there tends to be a, looking back, a, a narrative that a Lannister triumph was kind of inevitable because we've all internalized the Red Winning and how thoroughly it destroyed the Stark-Tully side. But for the first couple books, the Lannisters were always on the verge of losing absolutely everything. It's really only at the Blackwater that they get into the driver's seat.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very much in doubt. I, I mean, I think that's the Red Wedding totally colors our perspective because, you know, for the first two books, there there's not a, a single Lannister victory. Uh, I mean, you have a couple like very minor, very minor ones in the grand scheme of things in the in the Riverlands. And, and just and that's mostly because you have the Lannisters marching into the Riverlands and burning a bunch of undefended villages and scantly and defended castles like the Bracken Castle. You know, Gregory Clegane goes to that one, as we find out in Dance with Dragons, and, uh, and sacks that castle and Castle Derry. But those big victories are all on, this, on the Stark Tully side. You've got the Whispering Wood. You've got the Battle of the Camps. You've got the Golden Tooth. You've got, you know, Oxcross. You know, they all of these different victories that are, that are just kind of... Cascading into what looks like that's going to be the, the Lannister ultimate, the, the Lannister defeat, but that then gets upended when the, um, the Tyrells join the side of the Lannisters and we get the Battle of the Blackwater and the destruction of most of Stannis's army and, uh, and the, of Robb Stark and, uh, and his mother's Catelyn's downfall from there.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that even the successes the Lannisters have early on are immediately followed by reverses. Like Cersei succeeds at killing Robert and seizing the throne for Joffrey, but then Joffrey immediately screws it up for her by having that executed. And the initial yep. victories Tywin and Jamie have in the field in the Riverlands are quickly uh, turned to defeat by Rob once he shows up and he makes them both look like idiots. So yeah, the Lannisters yes. are, are, are kind of always, for the first two books, in the mode they are in this chapter, which is kind of uncertain of what's going on, where either it's all about to fall apart around them, they have way too many enemies and they don't know what any of them are doing. It's, it's not, their intelligence intelligence gathering is pretty bad. The fact that the fact that Pycelle, who was a Lannister toady, was allowed to give Ned Stark the book that John Erwin was reading before he died is unbelievable. But, but, you know, Cersei knows who Pycelle is working for. I mean, he responds to Tywin more than her, but she knows which side his bread is buttered. <laughs> Why on earth would you not immediately go to him after John Arryn died? And said, "Listen, if anyone asks, you know nothing. No, nothing. I mean, Pycelle says he let John Arryn die because he knew about the right the, the There's no reason. And you know, Ned reading that book almost ruins everything again for the Lannisters. So it's they're they're just they're just not very good at this. Is is the overall conclusion I reach about Cersei and Jaime? Given that they're again basically launching a coup." It, it, right. it, the fact that they succeed is largely through incredible luck, uh, really good timing. The fact that they have so many enemies that some of them work at cross purposes and that Robert somehow missed what's going on. If, if, if one of those yeah. changed, it all would have been gone.
0: Yeah, it's it's very much it's it's a house of cards that uh, somehow stays standing. I think it's probably the best my, in my mind, is the best thing that that I can uh, compare it to. Uh, but speaking of houses, and, and I didn't mean to skip over this section. You have a couple of great notes about the setting of Winterfell, and uh, really, the second one is the, just absolutely terrific. By the way.
1: Well, thank you, sir. Yeah, a lot of this chapter is uh, delving into Winterfell, and it's amazing how much world building Martin does with Winterfell in these early chapters. You got the the Godswood in Catelyn's first chapter. You got the hot springs brought up specifically in Catelyn's second chapter, and then this is a deep dive into uh, the layout and, and history of the castle as, as Bran uh, climbs around it and, and thinks about how much he loves it. Uh, uh, the builders had not even leveled the earth. There were hills and valleys behind the walls of Winterfell. There was a covered bridge that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower across to the second floor of the rookery. Bran knew about that. I love that. as a great little childish pride. Bran knew about that. He just seemed like, strutting yes. to himself. I know. I know the secrets. <laughs> and he knew you could get inside the inner wall by the south gate, climb three fours, and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in the stone, and come out on ground level at the north gate with a hundred feet of wall looming over you. And again, this is a great little childish line. Even Master Lewin didn't know that, Bran was convinced. <laughs> um, which, uh, yeah, I, I love that he's, he's, he's got this little childish pride in understanding his home. And it's just great because, like, this is what Bran does all day like Arya's right. Arya is in the sewing circle Arya are in the sewing circle John and Rob and Theon are in the training yard and Bran just walks around and looks at stuff. It's wonderful. Like it's just this very he's he's got a very wonderful little life here. Like this is the the idyllic presentation of, of childhood I think that we get in the series because a lot of a lot of childhoods go wrong yeah. really quickly in this series or start out horribly. Uh, I'm just thinking of like the Unsullied or all the children that die in Danny's arc or Lamy, or what's coming for Shireen, or what's coming for Tommen and Marcella, you know. But this is this little image we get of a branch childhood in the Winterfell, and him running around the building is as close as we get to it. It being genuinely sweet as it's supposed to be, and it's it's tied into you know the the close attention he gets from his parents. This is really this is really the chapter I think we see Ned and Kat as a parental unit. More than we do anywhere else, like them clearly trying to present a united front and deal with something about their children together. Whereas in other situations, we yes. just see them one on one with their kids. But this is where like Kat, Kat's worried that you know Bran's going to fall. Try, gets every, I love she gets everyone on Winterfell on board. Kat clearly went to just every room in Winterfell and said, "Listen, this is the deal. You're going to use whatever your thing <laughs> is with Bran to get him to never climb a wall. I don't care what you tell him. Stories. Make a little doll." give him a direct order. We're, it's, we're, a, we're a team. We're a team, you hear me? I just, I, I, I love this, uh, the, the domestic parts of Winterfell are very sweet. And a very a very touching moment when um, uh, Ned uh, finally just orders Bran. Uh, oh no, uh, Catelyn makes him promise to, to stay on the ground. He managed to keep that promise for almost a fortnight, miserable every day, until one night he got gone out of the window of his bedroom and <laughs> his brothers were fast asleep he confessed his crime the next day in a fit of guilt Lord Edward ordered him to the godswood to cleanse himself guards were posted to see that Bran remained there alone all night to reflect on his disobedience the next morning Bran was nowhere to be seen they finally found him fast asleep in the upper branches of the tallest sentinel in the grove which is like that's that's so storybook and fairy tale-y but it's, it's, it's perfect yes. it's perfect to imagine Bran climbing to the top of a tree and, and falling asleep and, and what's great is this next. as angry as he was his father could not help but laugh you're not my son he told Bran when they fetched him down you're a squirrel so be it. If you must climb, climb, but try not to let your mother see you. Is that not the most glorious dad moment ever? Specifically, try not to let your it mother is. see you. I mean, it's it's, it's, it, it's you get yeah. the sense of that the it's uh, that the Starks just really have this intense affection for each other, which is what makes it hurt when they're all torn apart.
0: Yeah, it it, it really does hurt a lot when they when they're torn apart. Um, the interesting thing too about Bran climbing the tree, it just kind of struck me just now. It's not a note on here, on the document that. Um, it, it may not be that that uh, it was about Bran being a squirrel. It might be Bran being uh, a raven or, or or a crow. Or as we as we find out that he's at the top of the tree where the the birds are, and you have that um, terrific scene in the Winds of Winter's Theon chapter where. Uh, you have all of the crows that are on the top that are on the top of the tree the the werewood tree out on the um, uh, the frozen lake and they're all screaming theon 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 tree 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 and uh, yeah I think that's that's definitely um, as I think about it, it seems like a very clear connection that martin is making between um, brands early uh, buildup as being someone who climbs and being at Places where no one but the, uh, the birds, I think that's something that's also brought up here in this chapter a lot, too, is that there's these are places that only birds can get to, that crows can get to, these and, and that only Bran can get to. And then you have that connection that goes throughout of, of Bran being uh, connected to crows uh, throughout the rest of his his story arc. And, uh, and, yeah, so he's, he's not necessarily a squirrel, as his father sees him as, but he's rather a, a crow. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Bran in Welsh is crow or raven or something I like bl- that? I
1: think it's raven. I would not. I'm not certain of that. But okay. I, I've heard something like that. Yes. Uh, and, yeah he's, yeah, he's the winged wolf. It, it You know, he makes sense. It, even more than he goes from climbing to flying. That's a pretty natural progression. He just just wants to get up, up into the blue. Uh, it's just, actually, that reminds me of the sky cell. So that's not great. But... Yeah, he's always he's always he's always reaching higher, and um, yeah, I do I love that moment at the end of Theon's released Wins chapter, and it does set up which something that could be one of the most hilarious moments in the entire series, which is Stannis dealing with a tree talking to him, like that is going to be like he was he was he was annoyed when the birds were talking to him. I mean, one of the, most, the greatest Stannis moments is when he Stannis turns, stop that noise. He says it to a bird. Stannis tells him. Bird to shut up. It's just adorable, and so just imagine the imagine the expression on his face when a child's face appears in a tree and tells him not to execute the guy who was just about to execute. It's just gonna. He's not gonna know how to be angry first. It's 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 gonna be amazing, and that's something uh, I mentioned. Uh, Robert's brothers uh, being brought up for the first time in the text, and uh, uh, he. Uh, the, the introduction of Stannis is absolutely perfect in that Jamie mentions that Stannis would, quote, be enough to give anyone indigestion. Which is, <laughs> that is, you cannot imagine a more perfect way to first introduce and frame Stannis in the text. I say this as one of Stannis' mm-hmm. biggest fans, but yes, that is absolutely. Yes. That is absolutely the way you first seed Stannis as a character in your audience's mind. Is mentioned that absolutely no one can be around him for longer than 15 minutes without needing to, like... You know sit on a toilet and massage their face and sigh like that he's, he's just impossible to be around which is part of why I love him he's, he's like he's like a yeah, dog that yeah. growls at you but then you pet it for a while and it sits on your lap but once you know it's not because it likes you it's just tired right now and your lap is comfy like he's just he's, 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 he's grouchy in a way that I find cute more than anything else but but that's just me and my perverse little tastes and mine too excellent that's why we get along it's, it's, it's my kink it's my kink <laughs> <laughs> but yeah into, more into the uh, the setting and stuff Bran is uh, goes on about like the little places uh, of Winterfell that he knows better than anyone else including the, uh, the the Broken Tower that's one of his favorite haunts and when he climbs around Winterfell for one last time as he's trying to say goodbye uh, that, that's the part he thinks about that he wants he wants to go to his favorite haunt he calls it was the Broken Tower uh, haunt is a very interesting particular uh, word Martin chose for it there, given what happens there, and uh, yeah. you know the kind of way Winterfell is is then uh, kind of broken and has to be hopefully rebuilt later in the series. But yeah, it's very poignant that Bran's favorite place is the Broken Tower, given that he will be known after it happens here as Bran the Broken, and later refers to Winterfell itself as broken but not dead, just like him. Uh, but,
0: Terrific! That's a great point.
1: Thank you, sir. I mean, Bran basically is Winterfell. That's the sense you get from this chapter and, and from Clash of Kings and from his return there spiritually in, in Dance with Dragons. Like they're, but Winterfell is framed as almost kind of an alive place given like the hot springs flowing through the walls like, you know, blood through veins and the, the connection to yeah. the glass gardens, the way the crypts almost seem to have a, a sentience to them, the way Bran literally looks through the tree and talks to Theon. The, the castle itself is, is almost a, a, an entity in its own right and Bran... Bran is as close as anyone is to kind of exemplifying and embodying that. He he is the castle in a very kind of Fisher King, uh, the king is the land, spiritual kind of way.
0: Yes. Yes, for sure. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong too, the, the Fisher King story in Arthurian legend uh, does have the King Arthur being uh, paralyzed or, or significantly um, uh, wounded in such a way that he can't really walk anymore and that does have a... a, a Definite connection of, of Bran, brand as you had brought up in in earlier about Bran having an Arthurian connection. Bran is the Fisher King, uh, having that paralyzed uh, sense about him, similar to Arthur, and in the later parts of the Arthurian legend, is is it definitely a, a a good connection? I think it's it's deliberate on Martin's part, but yeah, no, it's 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 just a it's it's awesome. Uh, two, I, I you had you had brought this up in the John uh, summary about how. The uh, the hot springs running through the walls of Winterfell were uh, is symbolizing Jon Snow, uh, but here you have the Broken Tower, which is symbolizing Bran, and I think that's it's something that is just kind of blowing my mind right now. Thinking about the ways that Martin is integrating character elements into the very architecture of Winterfell and and, and crafting in such a way that it makes it not just a a castle place of refuge and defense, but very much a part of the Stark identity, and bringing all of these different aspects, which dominate their story and characteristics of, of the Stark kids and of Ned too, uh, in, into into the into the very walls and, and structures of Winterfell.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've talked you know before in previous episodes of this podcast about elements that martin set up and then dropped character traits that he moved on from uh you know ways in which a game of thrones is is different from the story as it as we know it after five books and looking into the winds of winter but one thing that he clearly had in mind right from the beginning and that has not changed at all is this set of uh, symbolic uh images and themes about the connections between house stark and and their castle he he clearly knew exactly what winterfell was as a location and was clearly driven to write a lot about it in this first book you know it's cent- yes. central to everything that he's trying to express in the series there's the there's the magical elements there's the identity elements that we were just talking about with the Stark kids consistently associating with home and family and their There, there's the political element with uh, the Starks providing refuge during Winter and uh, Ned's vassal is going to fight to liberate Winterfell for exactly that reason there's uh, you know, nothing nothing you can't talk about through the lens of Winterfell like I said earlier there's Everything you can love about A *Song of Ice and Fire* is in this chapter somewhere. It's 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 so dense to be to be completely <laughs> it's to, to be perfectly pretentious about it. It's so dense.
0: It is. It is. Um, so that's uh, there's a lot about the architecture, a lot about the structure, and we will get into that a little bit more in the theory section uh, as, as we talk about that. Um, but so this uh, this chapter, though, I feel like, and and you can jump in and, and say otherwise, that it's kind of our first big shock moment of the series, right? You would, I would, you would, it's basically the moment where I, when I was, and granted, I had seen season one of, of Game of Game of Thrones before I had read uh, the book of Game of Thrones. Um, but I do remember this being, this was the, the episode ending for episode one. And I remember it being just that moment where I kind of, it just kind of snapped into my mind that like, man, this is this is a bit different than what I what I was expecting. I was expecting kind of typical fantasy fair, Lords, Ladies, Knights, Wars, good guys, bad guys, kind of Lord of the Rings-ish type fantasy in a more medieval setting. But yeah, but, the, but this moment does kind of upend that apple cart. And it's, it's that first big shock moment of the series.
1: Absolutely. It happens to the youngest POV. It happens to the POV who's most... Position as a classic fantasy protagonist, I would argue even more than John. Uh, I think Brand is so the the, uh, the Arthurian themes and the connections with his name and just the overall very strict step by step hero's journey he's been on throughout the series. And it it what's great about it is that the shock of it—it's both a huge brutal narrative shock in the moment, but looking at Brand's story in the whole, it's. Uh, it's a perfectly logical thing that needs to happen for that hero's journey. It's it's a classic confrontation yes. of a kind that any any protagonist would face, but it's framed in such a way and happens so out of nowhere. I mean, most of this chapter, again, is is very is so positive and warm and generous and beaming and full of lovely little family moments. Like and then and then and then the dagger comes in. So the the execution of it, uh, I think, makes it seem like a bigger twist than it actually is if you zoom out and look at the whole story. In the same way that Ned's death actually seems like, oh, if you zoom out, like, oh, that yeah, the mentor dies. Of course, the father figure right. of the young fantasy character dies. Of course, that makes complete logical sense. But the way Ned is framed as a POV in his own right and the POV driving the first book makes him seem like the protagonist instead of the mentor father figure. So just the way Martin frames and executes this material, it's not always as... It's not chaotic in the way it's sometimes talked about, where he's just throwing in random uh, chessboard explosions. Uh, it's yeah. it's, cl- it's very clearly plotted out and logically plotted out in this first book, but the writing of it and the the context of it is what frames these as, as unbelievable uh, mind exploding, uh, you know, the, like narrative disruptions. When what when what they really are <coughs> is just the next narrative beat, but the way he executes them right. makes it seem like he's he's breaking the story and that's just such a, a viscerally effective way of doing it
0: yeah I, I i do agree that is a a way that kind of explodes the mind and also um works itself out logically
1: and the other uh the other big shock moment along with of course bram being thrown from the window is the revelation of the twin cest uh when we uh, glimpse that jamie and cersei are have this uh not just that are discussing about people who think they've done bad things, but that they have, they're engineering this coup, wherein, I mean, we get this fully revealed later in the novel that uh, they're uh, kind of stealing the throne out from under Robert and committing treason against him. Uh, Stephen Owl has a great point that, that this chapter is one of the most valuable in the entire novel because it's one of the few times in which we see participants in the political conspiracy talking openly about what they were doing and how they perceived the other political actors in Westeros, as opposed to trying to convince someone what they're acting because they think they're totally unobserved, which is a bit of an obvious literary ploy, but given that the two people in conversation are reacting to new developments, it's certainly plausible, which happens really only once again in the novel. Uh, end quote. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, that's uh, Arya overhearing Varys and Illyrio. Uh, but the twin Cest yeah. also uh, ties into what we were talking earlier about Bran as a extremely youthful POV and how that filters the events that we see in his chapters. I think, you know, part of what makes it so difficult for Martin to write Bran is that, Bran has to keep knowing less than we do and knowing less than Martin does. And he has to withhold yeah. information as well as giving us exposition. And that's a really difficult balancing act. I think by the, I think by the time you get to Night of the Laughing Tree, he's just sublime at it. Uh, but you can see him kind of working <laughs> his way through that, that balancing act here with Bran. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting to see, see this through the eyes of someone who doesn't quite get it. Uh, because that just kind of adds to, like, the wrongness of it, I think, and just the, the weird queasy feeling we get of seeing what's going on, because this, I mean, this is so much the inverse of the Ned Cat sex scene we had a couple chapters ago, where that mm-hmm. was, you know, you had a this very kind of intimate, generous, very sweet relationship between these two people, whereas Jamie and Cersei are just snapping at each other and hurting each other and fucking because they're bored and also their brother and sister and also she's married to somebody else and like in in every way this is this is the flip side of that earlier sex scene and you know that's it's again it factors into a loss of innocence for Bran that like this is this is how he really kind of comes to understand sex in this horrible context and it's it's yeah, it, it definitely it it's it's also like a, a moment that yeah, like you're saying about the story kind of signaling itself as something different, as something unexpected that you should be paying attention to. It definitely stands out in that regard uh, because it's you're ready for the Lannisters to be the enemies. You're already that's set up already from Catelyn too. But yeah. this is something. This is a dimension you you have no clue is coming before it lands on your face, and it's it's not. It's it immediately establishes this, uh you know, it's it's gonna go there in dimensions that are, are, are you know, genu- genuinely risky to have your audience come along with you on. I mean, obviously it's not being framed as a positive thing that Jamie and Cersei are sleeping with each other. No. But just purely as content and content that we, it is not whispered about or hidden behind a veil or suggested, but shown in detail to you immediately is, you know, it's, right. it's a very bold move. Um and uh, I think it's. I think it. I think it's. I, I. I think it overall works. I think there are there are some elements about how Martin presents sex as we'll get into as the series goes on that I think he's not very good at or hasn't fully thought through the implications of. We talked about a little bit about that in the uh, in the upcoming Storm versus Dance episode about a certain uh, sex scene Danny has, but I think <laughs> overall I think. The way he deploys Jamie and Cersei's sex scene as a shock in this chapter is really effective, and mostly really effective because it comes through the eyes of someone who doesn't understand what he's looking at.
0: You know what's fascinating to me is that, um, and and I remember this when I was watching season one, and that I thought that the big reveal was that Jamie and Cersei were were having a, a relationship, uh, a, a sexual relationship with each other. Uh, but it's 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 great writing of Martin's part that that actually conceals like the bigger. Um, uh, motivating and driving conspiracy, which is that they're trying to put their own child onto the Iron Throne, or rather, Cersei is trying to put Joffrey uh, onto the Iron Throne, who is not Robert's, and that that becomes the the big reveal at the very end of, of A Game of Thrones, or close to the very end of A Game of Thrones, when Ned finally finds finally finally finds it out. But it's interesting here in that this almost conceals that. Reveal, So you're thinking, oh, this is the big thing. Like we're supposed to be like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be driving the plot forward. But then Martin has a wheel within the wheel of that. None of the kids that Cersei is that Cersei has are Roberts, that they're all Jamie's. And I think that's just a, a, a terrific um, uh, way that Martin writes and that he he's he he's almost like a one, two, three, he, they, his, uh, his editors talked about that. Martin has a, a one, two, three kind of reveal thing here. And that, um, I, I think you could see elements of it, uh, of the ultimate reveal being that the, the last kids are the last kids. They're not, they're not Roberts. You have here that Jamie and Cersei are in a relationship. And then, you know, in, in John's chapter, it's brought up repeatedly how Joffrey is blonde of hair and that, uh, And Arya's chapter that, you know, she's watching Joffrey and he's also has he's blonde of hair and he has the quartered uh, Lannister and Baratheon sigils, which also work as as foreshadowing of of all that, too. So uh, it's 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 really, really good writing on Martin's part to kind of uh, reveal a part of the conspiracy and then later, like have it unfold to be this really huge, massive thing, which has consequences that go way beyond the uh the survival of uh of Jamie and Cersei and Tommen and Joffrey and Marcela uh to being a issue where who is who is the king is the king actually the, the son of of, of Robert is, is Joffrey the son of Robert which as we know is is not the case and that becomes a driving factor in in a clash of kings where Stannis makes his claim solely because that Joffrey is not actually Robert's son and that Stannis is the true heir to the Iron Throne
1: yeah, it's it's something I love about Martin's twist is that he almost always plays really fair with you in terms of giving you a lot of hints that are, you know, not necessarily framed as such, but when you go back like you say it's like, "Oh, of course, Joffrey is is blonde, he's got the Lannister sigil. Like, the clues were all right there." Uh, or, you know, or the way one example that I love is Catelyn's whole thing with her dad when he's dying about Tansy and realizing what he did to Lysa. Yes. That's such a huge clue. About uh, what Lysa ultimately did in terms of, uh, regarding John Aaron and why, uh, but yes. you don't know because it's not exactly framed that way. And you already have an explanation uh, for for John Aaron's death. The only real exception to that, I think, is the revelation that Joffrey is the one who sent the knife after sent the cat's paw after Bran with the knife. There's really no hints about that before that comes, and I would I would probably rank that as my least favorite twist in the entire story because of that. You know, it's something I need need an answer to, I guess, but. You know, it doesn't change Joffrey's character at all. It doesn't no. really have a plot impact. And there's and yeah, it's, it, he wasn't playing fair with us in that count because there was really no reasonable way to have guessed that beforehand. It was just kind of, oh, yeah, Tyrion and Jamie just both kind of realize it. So yeah, but yeah, overall, I I completely agree. The, the way he establishes the twin cyst here and then we see the ripple effects of it later through the narrative, uh, it, it, it works really well.
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, but that's... Uh... The fact that the Twin cyst happened though precipitates Jamie pushing Bran from from the windowsill and that being that moment that just shatters our expectations of this being kind of common or more general fantasy fair and that kind of subverts our expectations. But this has kind of led to this idea and thought that George R. R. Martin is just a merciless killer of his characters and maiming them and torturing them and doing all these all this awful shit to his characters because He's a sadist, or he's a monster at writing, or he's doing it for shock value. And, you know, the, the thing about it is that I can get this impression from reading about Bran being pushed out of the window. Or, you know, later on, when Ned is beheaded, or Sansa is beaten by Joff's Kingsguard. Tyrion's nose is cut off. Jamie loses his hand. Catelyn is murdered at the Red Wedding. Arizokar is beheaded by Ariel Hota. Theon Greyjoy is tortured by Ramsay. Quentin Martell is burned and later dies of his wounds. Or when Jon Snow is stabbed... To death at the end of A Dance of Dragons And those are really our only our only our POV ca- characters in, in A Song of Ice and Fire In the um, uh, So this is interesting In the first three books alone One poster on Westeros.org Counted a total of 223 named characters Who died in, in the books In some fashion or other Many of them were killed uh, Martin himself has promised that In The Winds of Winter There will be plenty of deaths Including some point of view characters <laughs> <Victorian. And> So <laughs> I was just going to do
1: that Jeff You beat me to it
0: by a second. So that means that George Martin is a bloody sadist taking pleasure in killing characters, either for his own sadism or for the shock or for shock value. Right. Right. No, no. Wrong, 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 wrong. Renly levels of (laughs) wrong. It's not that George doesn't kill characters or have them endure significant physical turmoil or, or even disfigurement. He certainly does that. But it's not sadism or shock value that's motivating George in writing this way. The characters who die, are disfigured, who suffer abuse, or are paralyzed from being pushed from a window, have their fates meted out not out of, sh- out of sadism or shock value. Rather, and this is really important, so uh, listen closely, uh, it's because where lesser authors will throw their characters into impossible situations only to save them at the last moment by some narrative miracle, by and large, George R. R. Martin doesn't do that for his characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. What George does is drive the plot forward utilizing actual consequences for his characters. So, when Bran is discovered by Jamie and Cersei in this chapter, George doesn't have the boys scramble away unscathed or have Jamie spare Bran for some god unknown reason. Um, instead, he doles out realistic consequences for Bran. Horrific consequences, but they're realistic. Of course, too, George does kind of want to heighten the tension for us as readers as, as we're progressing through the story, placing his characters in danger where the reader is unsure what will happen makes for a gripping read, and that's a, a reason why uh, a lot of people really enjoy their first read of Song of Ice and Fire because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, George actually said something about killing his characters. He said, quote, I always believed in killing characters because it makes the story more exciting. I want the reader to be afraid to turn the page, to feel as the characters feel, that sense of danger. I do it intentionally, uh, unquote. Now, of course, you know, uh, as much as I praise George for um, not giving his characters narrative miracles, there are a few spots in the narrative where George kind of doesn't allow the consequences to necessarily be meted out to these characters as well as, uh, as he does for others. There's some spots like when Summer saves John from having to kill the old man at the abandoned village at Queen's Crown, or when Stannis saves John uh, or rather, when Stannis arrives at the moment that he does and saves John from his choice over whether to kill Mance Rayder in his tent. But, you know, by and large, and I would say this is probably 98, 99 percent of the time Martin writes with a, with a view that consequences kind of flow from, from action. And so kind of on a different but similar tract, you know, we, we talked about Bran and how that's being a, a natural consequence to Bran having witnessed Jamie and Cersei And being discovered uh, Martin doesn't write Jamie as having this sudden Moment of empathy and sparing Bran The consequences for Bran living are immense And this is something else that George has Talked about he said quote Bran has seen something that is basically A death sentence for Jamie for Cersei For their children their three actual children Unquote So we're going to talk about a little bit about, more about that at, Towards the end of the podcast but Jamie knows That if he spares Bran that he's killing himself And the people that he loves if Bran talks which he would, most likely. And even though we as readers are horrified at Jamie pushing Bran out of the window, it does fit in the context of both the character of Jamie and the potential consequences that would flow if Bran were to talk. But... As it turns out in the Game of Thrones, Bran doesn't talk, he loses a bit of his memory after his fall. Uh, he is paralyzed for the rest of his story, which is, becomes a crucial and tragic part of his identity. But what Bran becomes is drawn from those realistic consequences that Martin integrates into this chapter of him overhearing Jamie and Cersei being discovered and then pushed. So characters enduring and suffering realistic consequences that stem from their decisions works. It gravitates us towards the series and makes The Song of Ice and Fire the exciting and powerful series that we all love and enjoy.
1: Beautifully said, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's an important part of the story. It, it, it's, it's immersive, as Martin said. It's designed to get an emotional reaction out of us. It's not designed to convey the idea that nothing means anything and that you should like, you know, calling him a sadist means he's enjoying doing this to his characters, and that's there's there's such a clear aura of sorrow and mournfulness about what happens to Bran in this chapter. Yeah. Again, it's, it's set up the way it is to show you the life Bran lived and how it was important and worth living, and he's someone you should love. And yeah, there is a certain amount of uh, hardship you're asking of your audience to then make the emotional jump to watching him fall screaming from a window, but it's it's there to emphasize that this is you know this is a, a f- it's it's a fall for us as well it's a fall into knowledge yeah. it's it's our way of understanding that Westeros is in some respects a fallen world that we're supposed to see as 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 kind of cursed it's not just heron hall and the nightfort westeros is, is is kind of under under a spell in, in a way that i think it reaches its height with the others themselves uh, Yeah. You know, it's, there's there's a there's definitely an aura of you know of death and decay that hangs over the series i think most strongly in a feast for crows from the title on down in that book but it's it's (laughs) it's already here i mean the broken tower alone kind of symbolizes that you know this is this is not a world that is working properly i guess is the best way of putting it and this is this is part of that but that only works if you want the world to work properly like the shock and horror isn't there if you don't give a shit you have to. Otherwise, it's otherwise it, it's just torture porn. It's just saw. It doesn't you're you're just in it yeah. for the for the yucks and the, the kills, which there's nothing inherently wrong with that at all. But no, but oh. but you wouldn't get the kind of fervor and attention that this series has gotten if that were all it is.
0: Yeah. You know, the thing, too, is that George has talked about um, the Red Wedding. That was he saved that as the, ver- the very last thing they wrote for A Storm of Swords because he found it so painful to write killing catelyn and rob and he's he's talked about how uh he doesn't have any children any natural children of his own he considers the characters of his story of a song of ice and fire to be his children and and that's that doesn't speak to someone who's a sadist when they're they're writing it speaks to someone who writes very well and writes authentically i think is probably almost the, the best word i would use here he writes authentically that these people are are going through a whole lot of shit and a whole lot of horrible things but they it 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 makes sense why they're, why, why they're going through the things they're going through, that they're suffering because of the decisions of themselves or the decisions that, that others make. But he's not doing it bad out of a sense of, of trying to satiate some desire to inflict harm on, on his characters. He's not, you know, Agatha Christie, who, you know, wrote this whole book about the death of, of Hercule Perrault because she hated the character so much. But but yeah, so it, it's George is, is, is not a sadist in, in this um uh, in, in writing song of ice and fire it's it is hard reading sometimes but as hard as it is for reading for us it's got to be exponentially harder and it's, he has said it's exponentially harder to write the the type of um um terrible things that are happening to his characters that he, he loves he's even talked about he loves that little shit joffrey you know when he tries to build some empathy in 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 joffrey's death so that's yeah, I, I just I think that's that's a, a bad misread of, of Martin as as a writer to think of him as a sadist or as uh, writing for shock value. I think he writes so much better than that and so much more beautifully in that he can capture a tragedy and horror, and also the good moments too. Because The Song of Ice and Fire is not necessarily just a book of bad things happening to good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's 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 so much more than that. It's, it's a well grounded, realistic world and setting that we that that meets out the good and the bad that that, are, that good and the bad reign on both the guilty and the innocent alike
1: exactly and you have you know thinking again about what i mentioned earlier about how sweet bran is and how he makes friends across class lines one line just sprang into my head at one of the feasts the wonderful feast in clash of kings when he sends he sends food down to old man and hodor for no reason but that he loved them like it's oh. that's just come on how, how, how does that not yeah. melt your heart and that melts your heart all the more because it's surrounded by a lot of death and misery, like yes. the, the lowest of the lows are there, in order for the highs to become all the higher. You know, we, you, you feel it. Mm-hmm. The, the torture and hell Theon goes through makes it that much more awesome when he takes that leap from the Winterfell heights with Jane, and you know, is, is a giant middle finger extended to Ramsay when he does that. Like that, that makes it all the more powerful. The fact that you know, uh, Stannis is so mired in his resentments and can't see past his pride in the Clash of Kings makes it a lot more cathartic when he learns better in the Storm of Swords. He admits to Jon, yes, I should have come sooner and Davos reminded me of my duty when all I could think of were my rights. You know, you have to, hmm. dramatically, you have to, you have to put us through those moments if you want us to really feel it when people triumph. Because I think that's what yes. Martin's overall critiques of fantasy is that the triumphs stopped meaning anything. Like and yeah. you get to the end of the book and they'd have won. And you'd be like, all right, that's nice. And you wouldn't cool. you wouldn't walk away skipping like you're supposed to do. You wouldn't be inspired like you're supposed to be. He wants to give you those 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 no chance and no choice moments. Uh, but I think he has the integrity as an author to realize that if, if you're gonna if we're gonna swallow that as an audience, we have to if we're gonna believe that is realistic, then you have to take the consequences like you were saying so well that go with that that realistic nature because. Otherwise, dramatically, it's false.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I figure we'll quickly go into our likes uh, because we, we we were talking about this actually a couple times before we, we came into this episode. We, we really don't have any dislikes for this chapter. Uh, we tried. We I really tried. Did, I read I the chapter four times. Yeah, I read the chapter four times and kept trying to find new things and I found nothing. Uh, so brief quickly because we have a, a lot of uh, cool stuff to talk about in our foreshadowing groundwork and we have for a special treat for you guys at the end um, ab- about a ugly and bad theory uh, so our likes uh, for me um, I like the architecture of Winterfell I think that's really cool and there's so many uh, things to pull out of that and um, you know there's Maybe for our, our patron, we'll, we'll do a, a special episode about the architecture of Winterfell and, sure. and talk a little bit more about that. Because uh, there's been a number of great episodes that folks like uh, uh, Lucifer Means Lightbringer and History of Westeros and Joe the Magician did on on the crypts. But there's so much more about Winterfell than simply the, uh, the crypts. There's the walls, the castle itself, uh, and so much more about that. Uh, I love the old Nan buildup. Again, she is not introduced in this chapter, but she is mentioned uh, in and uh and telling brand the stories as we have Bran, we have old Nan introduces as a storyteller which is great and i love her build up i also love more of the Lewin stuff i love him thinking about him dressing up a uh, clay doll in brand's clothes and throwing him off the top of a tower and brand looking at it, and then be like oh that's not me i'm i'm not i'm not made out of clay you know it's like a very childlike thing that he would say and that's it's yeah, just a-
1: very literal that's cute and again i love imagining the expression on Lewin's face when like Catalan told him to do that like it just it's just so adorable uh or, or maybe catelyn just suggested that lewin do something and that's what lewin came up with uh it's just it's it's a it's wonder it's wonderfully dark whoever whichever, yes. whichever one of them came up with it it's, it's a wonderfully dark thing for them to do to bram i like
0: it yeah we could definitely go with the headcans on that one i mean you can imagine that lewin telling catelyn the plan and catelyn being like uh Okay, I I guess that's a little
1: extreme, but no, as as a (laughs) as a firm advocate of scaring children, I like I like that parenting strategy.
0: That that is that is something that I am uh, going to have to uh, learn very quickly. um, As my daughters,
1: it's good for them. It's 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 good to do it. Show your kids horror movies, folks. They'll grow up better because
0: of it. Uh, And then uh, and then my final uh, like, and I I mean, I have so many things I like about this chapter that I we kind of talked about in our, our in depth. A portion of it is uh, Ned Stark's father's face because you have Ned Stark, the Lord's face and Ned Stark, the father's face and dealing with Bran's climbing and calling him a squirrel and stuff like that. I think is uh, very touching. Um, and like, like I said, there's there's nothing I dislike from this chapter. This chapter is really, really Martin at his best, especially in these early books as he's writing. I I feel like that, he, that this chapter just clicked really, really strongly for me. Um, initially and even you know six or seven rereads later it's it's still clicking for me and, and still makes me feel things and I think that's a giant testament to to Martin how um, awesome he is as a writer
1: I couldn't agree more it's like I said it's basically flawless I was going through it just trying like okay is there a sentence I don't like is there a single sentence that doesn't know every <laughs> single sentence is perfectly in place I just I found only more things to like about when I reread it it's it's just yeah that, it's that good and I agree about the little Ned moment. Like I said in an earlier episode, you know Ned Stark's uh, defining character trait and his legacy his fundamental decency as, as a human being. And you really see that in how he deals with Bran, that he's trying to be angry. And then there was just a moment when he was looking down at Bran's <laughs> hopeful, miserable little face where just he just couldn't be. And he's, he was just, that's, yeah. just that's, that's the sweet man he is at heart. Uh, and that you can, just, you can draw a straight line from that to him putting it all on the line to try to save Joffrey, Tom, and Marcella. Uh, he just can't. Yeah. He just can't bring it in himself to 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 do this to an innocent child, and 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 God bless him for that. But um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you uh, on the the love for the architecture. It's a really uh, interesting way of uh, immersing you in the world. Uh, and yeah, it's it's one of Martin's world building things where it just doesn't feel stale or boring at all. It just it's it, it's really interesting. Um, there's always always a little more to learn, and I love it. it's refracted through Brand's childish pride. Uh, And it's just, it's just, it's just very visual. Like you can tell that Martin wrote for television, like, because there there are just moments all over the books where you can just see exactly what he's talking about. Or like the moment, like the moment where Tyrion's shadow stood as tall as a king. That's such a vivid uh, cinematic way of writing the scene uh, where you can just, you can see the, see the stage cues to make that happen. And you get a lot of that Mm -hmm. in how he describes Winterfell too. It's, he lays it out uh, perfectly in your mind's eye. Um, I like, I love, like I said earlier, I love Bran's sadness about about leaving Winterfell behind. Uh, it fits his overall fall from innocence arc in this book, uh, and it 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 really really makes you makes you feel for him in that ironic way when he stays, like he you know he 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 doesn't have to say goodbye as it turns out. Yeah. Um, and until you get to the end of the second book, and then. Uh, it's like it reminds me of when uh, Robin's parents are killed in the various incarnations of Batman because it's the same kind of thing like <laughs> he, he, you know Robin loves he's loved doing the tricks and he loved being part of this, this, the flying Graysons loved being up high thought he was never going to fall and then you get this, this, this horrible tragedy and with Bran it's like it's like, Win, he's like, he like it's like he trusted Winterfell not to let him go and Winterfell let him go like Winterfell yeah. watched as he fell and didn't catch him and how can he ever, <laughs> you know, it's like part of him is, is he can't quite trust it and, lo- and he still loves it and is still part of him as we see as the, as the story goes on. But the, the, you know, the, the, the bloom is off the rose here. Like he, it's, it's not, it's not an innocent love anymore. Uh, and that's just, no. and that's just really sad. Again, like it only works yeah, because Martin so clearly loves the place Graham was before this happens. And so you, you just, something has been lost here and it's, it's, it breaks your heart. Uh, and the other nice. thing I really love about this chapter is something we've alluded to a couple times in the podcast so far, which is the, the clever and elegant ways in which Martin does exposition info dumps in these early chapters as he introduces you to his world and the plot. Because uh, we, we do just get Jamie and Cersei just straight up talking at each other about important plot details and people. We didn't even mention that. This is the first time Littlefinger is, is brought up in the entire series just in passing. Jamie just mentions, mm-hmm. thank God I didn't pick Littlefinger because I would rather have honorable enemies than ambitious ones, so that's our first, <laughs> again, as with Stan giving you indigestion, that's a great way to frame your first thought of Littlefinger yeah. as a reader uh, but uh, what makes it not boring and what makes it not seem contrived is you have this real suspense because Bran is eavesdropping and is getting closer and closer and they're talking about his dad and you're terrified that he's going to be caught, which of course he is so it doesn't you don't really notice that Martin's just telling the plot to you because you're yeah. you're caught in the moment and it's it's so you can clearly see that strategy in Martin's part throughout these early chapters. okay I have to, I have to convey this information but how can I make it not just a brick wall that will make them stop reading out of disinterest with all these just random names how what's what's my vessel? How can I make this you know how can I make this dramatic? this is one of Martin's clear, like driving motives throughout this first book. How do, yeah. how do I get people's heart in their throats? I have the story. I have the framework. How, now, how do I grab them by the throat and not let go?
0: It's, 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 uh, it's really cool too. Cause Martin intersperses the dialogue with what Bran is doing. Yes. So yes. you have like the action piece of it, a Bran Like, I got to figure out a way to get into the window. How am I going to do that? The only way I can do that. And then you have, how can I do that? And then you have Jamie and Cersei talk, talk, talk. And then Bran's like, oh, if I wrap my legs around the gargoyle and swing my body around, I can see it, see through the window that way. That's really the only way. And then you have Jamie and Cersei talk more. And then, so you, you, Martin intersperses action with the exposition dialogue. And, you know, the exposition dialogue in and of itself is fascinating to me. Um, But I love the fact that Martin makes it just... That much more better by interspersing that action, those action scenes of Bran, trying to get a literal window into the world of Jamie and Cersei, uh, uh, by trying to get a get a, actually trying to look into the window, I guess itself. It's kind of a mixed metaphor. It's not really even a metaphor at all. It's just. <laughs> I can dig it. Just, just word diarrhea. Transitioning into our uh, one of my favorite sections of the podcast, our, our foreshadowing groundwork. Uh, portion of it there there's there's a lot guys guys and gals uh there's there's a huge amount of 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 stuff in this chapter that hints at things that we're going to be talking about for the remaining 330 ish episodes of this podcast we have to go through until we get to the end of dance dragons which of course by then the winds of winter will be out i believe but um but but yeah so i just uh to kind of kick this off one of my um Favorite things that uh, I really enjoy in, in looking at these early chapters is Martin establishing groundwork for things like the the trees having more uh, uh, life in them than, than we're, we're supposed to see right now and how it's more vague hints there. But there's also some really significant hints at warging. And uh, warging, for for those who are unfamiliar, is the, um, it might be a fanism or it might be an actual term, I'd have to look at it, but it basically means that the Starks have the ability to skin change into their direwolves. Each of the Stark kids, George is confirmed, have that ability to include Rob Stark, which um, has all sorts of sad... Uh, connotations, as we'll talk about when we get to the Red Wedding. Um, but here we get some hints that Bran has uh, a connection with his wolf that is a that is very strong. You have this wonderful quote here, which is, quote, The wolfling was smarter than any of the hounds in his father's kennels, and Bran would have sworn he understood every word that was said to him, but he showed very little interest in, in chasing sticks. Uh, unquote. So here, Bran and George is hinting that there is the connection between Bran and Summer. Uh, in this chapter here, that there's a um, a connection that goes beyond uh, simply that Bran um, is not imagining that Summer is under, understanding his words. Summer is understanding his words because there's a bit of a mind meld that's going on that'll become more apparent as the series progresses. So that's a, a, a great little introduction to that uh, fascinating part of the uh, the story.
1: Absolutely. And it, it ties into the overall themes of kind of maturation and leaving childhood behind we see in this chapter because Summer's not there to chase sticks. He's not there just to play and have fun with Bran in a, a, a great hmm. childish fashion. He's You can almost see Summer trying to say to Bran, like, no, I'm not, buddy, I'm not just like your pet. <laughs> I'm a metaphysical thing. <laughs> you're like the Messiah of the whole universe. Take me a little more seriously, please. <laughs> I know you're gonna fall. I was probably sent by Bloodraven. I'm I'm probably smarter than you, Bran. Can we just pro- can we progress this along, please? It's great. <laughs> let's, um, let's
0: push the push the narrative
1: forward. Exactly. Again, you can. He get understood understood every word that was said to him. I, I love. Yeah, I love that little implication that that this relationship uh, is is a much bigger deal than just a boy and his dog. I mean, it's also a boy and his dog. But uh, I, right, that would, right, it's, right. yeah, uh, Rickon and Shaggy is much more the boy and his dog relationship.
0: Yeah, but the, the interesting um, twist on that, too, is that Bran is also sensing that Summer understands him. So there's that kind of uh, it's kind of coming from both ends there that Bran understands that Summer, Bran understands that Summer understands Bran. There you go again more word diarrhea on my part but that's 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 fine um but but yeah so it's 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 cool that we get that that brief little introduction into warging uh but that's not all about the direwolves that uh is going on in this chapter uh we have our first introduction to this concept that when the direwolves are going nuts howling crying scratching at the door Uh, growling that it signals some sort of danger. And we have this quote from brand too, which is quote, he was halfway up the tree moving easily from limb to limb when the wolf got to his feet and began to howl brand looked down. His wolf fell silent, staring up at him through slitted yellow eyes. A strange chill went through him. He began to climb again. Once more, the wolf howled quiet, he yelled, sit down, stay. You're worse than mother. The howling chased him all the way up the tree until finally he jumped off onto the army roof and out of sight. Unquote. So what is this? What is Martin communicating here? He is uh, establishing that the direwolves have a supernatural or a preternatural sense for danger because we see this happening again and again and again in the narrative. We have this happening just a few chapters later when the direwolves are howling outside of Bran's window when the Winterfell library is burned and when the cat's attacks. You have ghosts going nuts when the Whites attack Lord Commander J.R. Mormont at the end or rather sort of in the middle of a, of a Game of Thrones then you have famously grey wind growling at the westernlings and spicers just before the red wedding and then finally you have ghost again bristling and bearing his teeth just before john's assassination which john misinterprets as uh it being barak's uh pig but in fact that ghost is bristling and bearing his teeth because uh he knows that the knives are are coming out for him he has that supernatural sense sense for danger so it's a a, a great introduction to one of my favorite uh, leitmotifs motifs that George R. R. Martin puts into the story of having the dire signaling danger by acting out of character and acting hostile or aggressive. And and that's, that's it's a good way also to communicate that the dire are like Emmett, like you said, like they're, they're special. They're not just, they're not pets. They have real purpose in the story and in, in shepherding these kids through uh, a, a very hard life and a very hard road that they're about to walk.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a great point that how often frequently that comes up in the narrative. And what's interesting is it also uh, works in reverse where the dire will signal out people that the Stark should trust and should be okay with that. Like ghost when he's, uh, when Sam is crying, walks up to him and starts licking his face. Uh, and that's really yes. what starts the John Sam bond uh, and allows them to connect uh, uh, summer. Uh, uh, digs the reeds to a large extent so that kind of allows Bran to, to, to get in with them and uh, one, one little pet theory I have is that uh, when Davos ends up on Skagos in Winds of Winter to try to find uh, Rickon that the way he runs over uh, Ocean Rickon's trusts, trust is that uh, Shaggy the most ferocious and violent of the Darwalds, will absolutely fall in love with the Onion Knight and like, and like you know roll over and beg to be scratched and lick him all over the face and that uh, that's what will convince, uh, Rick, like, like the the dragons with brown, Ben Plum. That's what will convince uh, Rickon and Osha to trust Davos and go back with him. But yeah, the direwolves, the direwolves are so yeah intimately connected to the not only the mental processes of their respective Starklings, but yeah, the the danger to them. Uh, and and unfortunately, it's 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 also poignant because it's not enough. Like they're not. It would be kind of cheap and easy if they were perfect at their job. Like Summer can't save Bran. Grey Wind can't save Rob. John leaves Ghost behind when he gets assassinated, and Ghost can't do anything about it. Uh, yeah. San- and Sansa can't protect Lady, and Arya can't protect Nymeria. Uh, you know, it's interesting that like the, the most ide- the most consistently functioning relationship there is Rickon and Shaggy, and that's just because they're both kind of going crazy. Uh, so yeah. as as close as the Starklings are, they their direwolves. They're not. Martin has said he doesn't like uh, magic being an easy hand-wave solution to problems in, in fantasy narratives. And I think you can see that with both the Direwolves and the dragons, that Martin is... Well, he shows they have powers and are really important to the narrative. He doesn't like solving problems. He, he does it a couple times with the Direwolves, like you mentioned, Summer saving Jon. Sure. But overall, it's he does it a lot less frequently than he could, and he definitely tips his hand knowingly when he uh, kills off Starklings without, or injures them in Bran's case without their Direwolves being able to do anything about it. So they're powerful, yeah. but they have, I think they have appropriate limits that keep them from being just uh, uh, an easy narrative element. I,
0: I do kind of wonder whether, as we're progressing into the Winds of Winter, and you have Bran developing his, his green site, and you have John that's almost certainly going to be spending a, a significant amount of time inside of of ghost consciousness, whether they'll be developing a much stronger bond, and you know you have that also too in Arya's chapters, where she her bond is so strong with Nymeria that she's sensing and seeing through Nymeria's uh, uh, Riverlands escapades through and all the way over in Braavos, and is and is living through um, Nymeria. And you have, like I said, we when we talked last two weeks ago about Arya's line about how her opening line from her uh, chapter from A Dance of Dragons, the blind girl, starts with uh, by night her. By day she was blind, but by not, by night she she was seeing through basically through through Nymeria how their connection between the Starks and the the Direwolves is going to grow and whether maybe, maybe, just maybe that they'll start the Starks will will begin to listen to their diewolves a bit more and perhaps they'll be able to have a stronger connection to know why they're signaling danger, whether there's going to be more to reveal a, about that. And and I'm not sure there will be necessarily, but I do kind of wonder whether that'll be a um a plot point that Martin will attack at some point in, in the narrative um, of the Sarks finally being like, oh, well, Ghost is going nuts. So I need to like be really cautious about what's going on around me right now and not trust these particular people that I'm interacting with or Bran sensing through summer that something is is widely amiss because uh, for whatever reason I mean there's a variety of reasons why why Bran would sense that things are amiss down in Blood Raven's cave but <laughs> I guess it's something that I <laughs> true, true. I guess it's I guess it's, it's something I'm I'd be, I'd be interesting in seeing is that if the Starks de- develop their connection with their direwolves more as they progress in the narrative and whether that's going to have an impact and they're finally going to be like okay time to like kind of step back think about things that are going on. The divers are going nuts. So I need to kind of chill out for a second and figure out whether there is an actual danger that is at work against myself or people that I'm close with.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting point. Like you say, there's a lot of dangers that could potentially uh, face Bran especially, but that also reminds me of one of the, one of the saddest moments in the whole story, which is when Rob tell, Catlin tells Rob not to trust uh, the Spicers because Grey Wind doesn't like them. And Rob responds yeah. he used to think of the Darkselves that way they their protectors, but then Bran and Rickon were killed, and it's so heartbreaking because, of course, they weren't. Uh, but right. Rob is making this terrible mistake on that basis, and you can see how the not deaths of Bran and Rickon have influenced both Catelyn and Rob. I mean, that's also in part what got Rob into Jane Westerling's bed was the the tragic news of his brothers being dead. So you can see how yep. you can see just how that how thoroughly that. Uh, destroy their decision-making process. And that's just, that's just a, that's just a heartbreaking moment. Uh, what if, you know, Robin Catelyn's story in storm, as we touched on in our storm versus dance episode, is just nothing but a series of heartbreaking moments though. So.
0: True that, true that, but it's not just, um, uh, the interesting thing about this chapter is that it's not just dire wolves that are a significant animal that are in this chapter. Uh, and, and I've, the great thing about having a podcast, with, uh, with Emmett, is that Emmett is the preeminent expert in all things crow, whether that's being the crows for Bloodraven or the crow's eye being gray Greyjoy. And there is a bunch of crow stuff in this chapter, which sets a lot of foundation for things to come later in the books. Yeah,
1: Bran talks about feeding the crows, how he's friends with them, how he likes doing it around the Broken Tower. Uh, at the very end of the chapter, the crows are circling overhead. That's kind of the last, it's like implied to be like the last thing Bran sees. Uh, before he mercifully passes out, um, and yeah, that's that's something, of course, that becomes very important for Bran's story going forward. He's visited in his next chapter in his dreams by the Three-eyed Crow, who we later learn to be his uh, Bloodraven. Uh, he then he makes it his mission to go visit the Three-eyed Crow with with Jojen Reed, uh, uh, symbolically meeting uh, the the crows, Samwell Tarly, and the former uh, crow, Cold Hands along the way. Uh, and then a, a birds, a lot of birds show up with cold hands uh, a couple times north of the wall, and uh, yeah, that and they're that and that does link directly to one of my favorite topics in all of *A Song of Ice and Fire*, which is uh, the strong hints that uh, Euron Greyjoy is uh, is a was a protege of Blood Ravens in the same manner that Bran was. Uh, if you haven't heard this theory, the the basics of it are Euron mentions in the uh, the Reaver and the Feast for Crows, he mentions Cypertarian that. Quote, when I was a boy I dreamt that I could fly. When I woke, I couldn't, or so the Maester said, but what if he lied? Which is a <laughs> note for note parallel of what happens to Bran. It's you know like he he had the dream where he could fly, he woke up, he found his legs were broken, he couldn't, and then his his, his skeptical rationalist Maester uh, discouraged it. Uh, it's exactly the same thing that happened. And if you look elsewhere with Euron, he's, his nickname is Crow's Eye, and those are that's a direct link to three-eyed crow, symbolically speaking, and all Blood Ravens, a thousand eyes and one, and his name you know, just the, yes. the the links are really strong there. Euron's banner is an eye getting crowned by birds, which is, is strongly reminiscent of the process of Bloodraven opening your third eye. And then uh, in the Forsaken, Euron's released wins the winter chapter. Uh, Euron refers to uh, the crow's eye as, oh, uh, he has another name for it, which is the blood eye, which is both an allusion to Bloodraven in terms of the word blood and in the implication of a red eye, just like the albino Bloodraven. Blood Raven. Hmm. And there's Euron's just overall... Crazy psychedelic, sorcerous, magical stuff, uh, which seems to demand an explanation of some kind, because no other Greyjoy is anything like that. So, Blood Raven visiting him uh, as a potential candidate for Last Green Seer kind of uh, explains all of that and gives it one coherent narrative. And uh, as we'll get into with Brand 3, one of the last things Brand sees in his dream is. Uh, a thousand other dreamers impaled upon metaphorical spikes implying that Blood Raven has been trying this not just Blood Raven hasn't just been waiting for Bran he's been trying this with a lot of kids and most of them have failed and died uh, but it sets up the possibility that Euron was was one of those candidates uh, but unlike Bran who is, has followed exactly the path Blood Raven wanted uh, Euron went rogue or uh, went crazy or both and has <laughs> has, has kind of emerged as a uh, it's kind of a, a dark, twisted version of Bran and is using using his powers for for evil rather than good. Uh, so who knows if Euron was in George Martin's mind at this point. There's Euron is never mentioned in A Game of Thrones. He's first mentioned in A Clash of Kings when Theon returns to the Iron Islands. There are a couple lines that are meant to establish Euron as the most dangerous and terrifying of the Greyjoys. Theon says that he can Balin and Victorian are old men that he can, you know, kind of shove out of the way he's just, he's, his uncle Euron was a, a different song altogether, but thankfully uh, silence did not seem to be in port. Uh, Asha mentions to Theon when she's pretending to pretend to be somebody else that uh, and Theon is again talking about easily brushing past his uncles to claim the Iron Islands that, uh, that Euron Crow's Eye is, is a, a particularly dangerous threat and she's heard terrible tales of that one and Yeah, Theon mentions that uh, Euron is infamous all over the world. So you see this setup that Euron is uh, dangerous even by Greyjoy, Ironborn pirate standards. And you also have in Clash of Kings certain narrative elements introduced that uh, come to tie in uh, potentially later with Euron. You have the Shade of the Evenings introduced in Danny's chapters that Euron later kidnaps the warlock she meets and takes that drug from them. Uh, It's the first mention of uh, the Horn of Winter, uh, which uh, I think uh, Euron has the strong potential to blow and bring down the wall. Uh, later in the story so he, Clash is definitely where you can see Martin starting to establish Euron you can see a sense of where he's going with him he might have been in mind in Game of Thrones the only real hints of it we do get are these little bits in the Bran chapters the connection to Crows uh, in, in this chapter and Bran's next chapter and the, the image of a thousand other dreamers impaled on the spikes uh, implying that Martin already had in mind the idea that Bran wasn't the first person Blood Raven tried this with
0: yeah, so it's um, it's definitely a potential that Martin had always envisioned Euron being a character and and having the the endgame implications that he seems to be seems to have in in the story itself. It's always a potential too that Martin realizes that he has a great opportunity to introduce this great character later beyond the process of writing a game of thrones uh, a clash of kings seems to be the point in on the meta side where george decides that there's going to be things like a mummer's dragon and a conflict between uh this mummer's dragon and daenerys targaryen you have things like potentially i uh, you know daniel's house of the undying uh, is full of all sorts of potential clues and hints as to, to future events that have not even progressed in the story um uh, Euron being potentially one of those things, too, because you have uh, it's people have speculated that Danny's house, of the undying vision of the um, was it the gray lips smiling sadly or, or something like that. That line from the house, of the undying vision right. is potentially seen as, as as Euron or it could be John Connington. It could it could be any number of characters as as because as, I don't think it's something that's. Progressed. yet that's, that's happened in the story. yet. could be Victorian as well. I, I, I tend to doubt it's Victorian uh, for a few reasons. One of which he doesn't smile. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So I, I, it's 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 really cool to consider uh, George. Having Euron in mind, even when he's writing Bran's second chapter and Bran's third chapter, um, I, I don't know, and I, I I feel like we will we wouldn't get that answer until after the series is finished. Uh, the, I have a whole list of questions on the meta side that I have, you know, plan to ask George. Things like when did the idea of you know this uh, using Aegon as, as uh, his smashed face as a um, was it always envisioned to be uh, to uh, foreshadow a conflict between Daenerys and a Targaryen usurper or a potential Targaryen and I think the urine stuff too would be an, a great question to ask George uh, sometime after the series is done but yeah it's it's fascinating stuff man like this the, all the crow stuff I I, I I am so looking forward to when we get to brand three because that is a trippy as shit chapter and it's going to be just a whole lot of fun detailing detailing it out with with, with you And, uh, and, and yeah, I'm just, I'm excited for it.
1: Exactly. We're going to have like lava lamps and there's going to be like a Jodorowski movie in the background. And (laughs) it's, it's, it's that, yeah, that chapter that we're going to have to bring our A game to that one because just everybody, as much as this chapter, that's just Martin ramping up the game and the whole meaning of the series to a level that you have no idea is coming before you get to that set of visions. Uh, Oh yeah. That's gonna That's going to be a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, to, we're speaking of Lead Raven, uh, who's uh, all, you know all wrapped up in trees now. Uh, there's, the, the int- there's some interesting foreshadowing in terms of Bran going to that cave and and taking part in that kind of uh, the Green Seer weirwood face in the trees process in this chapter. Uh, you have Bran saying he loves, uh, quote, watching it all in Winterfell. He loves being above everyone and looking down at what they're doing and seeing the daily routine in Winterfell, just like you might do watching silently from a weirwood tree, as he does in multiple times in A Dance with Dragons, both from his own POV and Theons. And then there's the uh, even more blatant line where he's he's talking about Winterfell and said... Uh, the place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree, Maester Lewin told him once, and its branches were gnarled and thick and twisted, its roots sunk deep into the earth. So again, you get the sense of Winterfell as a living thing, it's directly comparing it yes. to a tree, one that's grown over time. Uh, it establishes once again that the godswood and the weirwood are kind of the heart and center of Winterfell uh, at a thematic and symbolic level. But yeah, it's also a very blatant hint that Martin already had in mind that Bran would, uh, at some point, be looking through the weirwoods and be connected to the faces in the trees. Uh, uh-huh. So it's 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 great to come back to that. Like I said, you know, Martin has changed a lot over the stories, the course of writing it, but uh, uh, the, the details of Winterfell itself and how they connect to the characters—so many of them he clearly had in mind from the very beginning.
0: Yes, yes, very much so. It's 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 definitely cool thinking about and it kind of blows my mind thinking about how much how much martin is 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 writing here at early at this juncture how much of this is in mind of, of about uh brand going into the tree brand being able to see through the tree how george seems to have had this concept in mind very very early on in writing a song of ice and fire but it's something that's not realized until Brand starts to have visions through the Winterfell Godswood in his final chapter, this final published chapter so far. Again, we're recording in March two thousand eighteen, um, where where he's he's seeing events from the past through the tree, and uh, but seeing that too of of it having um, the tree and the castle itself connected is is just terrific, and it's it's a great way to describe a setting. In a way that doesn't feel like these are the walls, these are the towers, these is the, this is the tree, and that it kind of, that just the, the the line, the roots sunk deep is just a, it's a very visceral line for me. I, I don't know how to describe it better than that. It's, it's, it's a great, it has feeling in it, you know, it has authenticity it has feeling and it has resonance as, as a reader instead of just saying that there was a tree there but its roots sunk down deep has this implication of it old of it being there for a long time of it being strong and and it just i don't know it's it's, it's just great i'm sorry it's, i'm I'm, bla- I'm blabbering
1: it's terrific now and winterfell you know you, you got to take winterfell seriously like for good or ill it it has a huge impact on these characters it's either for Bran and sansa and ned the 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 core of their identity or for John and uh, Theon and uh, Barbary Dustin it's it's something they have to actively wrestle with and have complicated relationships with uh, and yeah it's uh, the, the the way it's written and the way it's emphasizes something old and strong and alive only enhances that that the, the central place it holds in the narrative um, yes. and uh, and also you know from a practical plot perspective all these kind of details about the architecture uh, might not just be there to, as part of brand story or as window dressing but uh, might uh, pay off in the, in the books to yeah. come. Uh, currently, uh, the state of affairs in the <laughs> north is that uh, uh, the Boltons hold Winterfell along with uh, their ostensible allies among the northern lords. Stannis is uh, marching on the castle. Uh, he's he's about to give battle to Hostine Frey's forces at a little crofter's village nearby where we've seen both Asha and, in the Windsor Winter, Theon have POV chapters. There's been a lot of speculation, of course, given the pink letter about what actually happens with Stannis' campaign, how he deals with the Boltons, what characters are involved, but as we mentioned earlier, at the end of Theon's released Twins of Winter chapter, we do get this implication that Bran and Bloodraven are present, talking through the birds, and uh, are very excited at the idea of Theon being brought before the uh, local Weirwood, implying that they're going to get in contact uh, and there's a lot of potential reasons that they could want to do this. Uh, I think Bran, being the sweet kid he is, uh, probably wants, probably doesn't want Theon to be killed, is, is my guess, no. and, and will intervene on his behalf. Uh, Bloodraven, going back to the Bloodraven, uh, Euron being Bloodraven's rogue protege theory, I've always thought that Bloodraven might specifically want to get involved here because Euron has taken over the Iron Islands and he wants Theon alive as someone who could potentially topple him. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, kind of uh, help cover, cover and deal with Blood Raven's mistake there. Uh, but regardless, they seem to be about to take a major role in that campaign. And so the potential payoff for Bran detailing the architectural quirks and secrets of Winterfell is that through the Weirwood and through his birds, he might be able to help Stannis take the castle from the Boltons uh, in, in a kind of unexpected yeah. or, or, you know, some kind of striking them from behind by coming out through a hidden door kind of way. Uh, and that would just be, uh, of, as, as, as someone who loves uh, uh, long-awaited payoffs and as someone who very much wants Stannis to succeed, uh, that, that, would, that would be a real delight to see. Although, who knows, you know, he might have a lot of, obviously, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, a lot of Game of Thrones still shows uh, the signs of the plot outlined in the pitch letter of the series, which, of course, has, has changed uh, to a huge degree over the course of the series. And in that pitch letter, uh, Tyrion was supposed to uh, attack and burn Winterfell at some point. Obviously, Theon does get part of that plot in A Clash of Kings. Um, but maybe those the mention of all those tunnels and stuff was supposed to come into play when Tyrion attacked the castle. I mean, later on in the book, the Direwolves growl and snap at Tyrion, implying that maybe that was still on the table at this point in the story, that Tyrion was yes. going to at some point yes. attack Winterfell. Because like we said, the Direwolves can sense danger, even though... Tyrion himself does not really pose any danger to the Starks at any point, at least not compared to the rest of his family. Um, so you know maybe that was uh, going to be part of Tyrion's attack, but it got repurposed for Stannis' later, which was as a very Martin-esque thing to do in terms of how he mm-hmm. has changed this uh, his direction in the series, but managed to use elements he planted he planted earlier anyway. Uh, so yeah, either way, I'm, I'm excited to see. Uh, uh, how how he pays off the, all these little details about winterfell's architecture
0: i i do think um to go back to one of your earlier points you know theon has several scenes in front of the heart tree in winterfell in a dance with dragons where he's sobbing and apologizing to bran and um i could see that also playing a part in bran wanting to save theon's life in that he's like well he, he's he's obviously changed from the guy he was when he took took winterfell back in a clash of kings and he's genuinely sorry about everything that happened and he's he's asking for asking to die um uh which i don't know there's there's a part of me that wonders if if theon might be sacrificed and and that Bran might have the one white want to bring theon out to the the heart tree because he wants to grant theon's wish of of dying which is something that theon wants i don't know that's necessarily going to happen but I see it as a potential possibility it's entirely possible um, because you know Theon confesses that he he just you know give me a sword something that I'd let me die as iron board is something that he says in a dance with dragons it's a very moving scene um, I see Bloodraven having kind of a twofer in I could definitely see him wanting to have Theon preserved as the the um, As the the latecomer archetype to uh, replace Euron Greyjoy, I can see him having a very clear understanding of Ironborn history, uh, being the smart guy that he is. But I also see uh, Bloodraven being also the bit of uh, Machiavellian that he is and kind of the greater good type of person wanting to use Stannis to kind of quickly end the war in the north so that he can start rallying the north in advance of the others coming south. That seems like a very Bloodraven thing before Potentially the, the Starks kind of coming in and, and unseating Stannis or upsetting Stannis' uh, uh, claim to the um, the loyalty of the Lords of, of the North with things like Rob's Letter. And man, there's it, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be going on in the North come the Winds of Winter. But I just see Bloodraven having that purpose of maybe using Stannis to kind of get the, the conflict done as quickly as possible so that, that the North can start focusing on, on the true threat, which my fear is that they won't necessarily, but that's something we could talk about as a, as, as a, in a in in a later episode or perhaps a special episode. Uh, but yeah, so that architecture stuff is is fascinating. Um, you know, the Devil's Fingers podcast, our, our friends Matt and Skad, did a uh, analysis on um, *A Dance with Dragons*, the King's Prize, which they brought up in their *Devils After Dark* portion of the episode uh, about how Bran is talking about the tunnel that's running through the walls and how that's a potential way that they get into, that Stannis' army gets into the castle of Winterfell. I, I I don't know. Um, it's interesting about that tunnel itself is that it doesn't actually get you inside of the second wall. So the way that Winterfell is structured is that it's actually two walls. You have a curtain wall and you have an inner wall uh for the for the castle and i'm sorry I'm, I'm geeking out on the architecture here for a second so i apologize you know mute, mute me or turn me off for a second turn your brain off but the the tone ton of the brain references doesn't go it crosses under the curtain walls the outer wall but it doesn't actually go inside of the uh the interior wall so there'd have to be another way to get actually inside of the uh the second wall of the castle so that's a. Uh, An obstacle that Stannis will have to overcome. Uh, The fortunate thing that Stannis has going for him is that he has a lot of potential allies in the erstwhile. "Quote unquote" allies that the Boltons have among the other Northmen there, uh, with Wyman Manderly, and the Umbers that look like they are ready to jump at a moment's notice to join Stannis' side as soon as Rickon shows up, and even before Rickon shows up, Wyman Manderly is antagonizing the Freys in in the Castle Winterfell. So there's a whole lot of stuff to potentially pay off that gets introduced in this brand chapter, um, and yeah, it's it's exciting to see what's what what'll happen with that.
1: One little note I think is potentially interesting about what Bloodraven's motivations might be here and if they're connected to what happened between him and Euron is that earlier in the Theon Winds of Winter chapter, he's describing, he's flashing back. That that chapter takes place uh, at the Crofter's village and he's in a hut with Stannis and he flashes back to the escape from Winterfell. He thinks about the fall with Jane Poole and how they were rescued by uh, Morris Umber, aka Crowfood, and uh, describes Morris as this you know huge, gigantic bear of a man, and he has a, a, a white leather eye patch because uh, Crowfood's backstory, of course, is that a crow uh, bit out his eye. So Crowfood, being an Umber, naturally grabbed the bird and just bit his head off because that's what you do if you're from the last if you hang out Last Hearth, uh, and then you're on Theon remembers uh, thinking about Euron when he was looking at Crowfood like the sight of Crowfood's eye patch Theon says he, he wanted to pull the eye patch off and make sure it wasn't Euron's eye, that it wasn't the crow's eye a quote, a black eye shining with malice so that, that very specific, it's, you know, that's a very kind of deliberate reference by the author, it's not plot relevant, it has nothing to do with going on, it's, it's just a quick mention of Euron and the crow's eye so that 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 for me feels like Martin's kind of priming you to integrate Euron into this plot and think and so that's that's kind of what leads me to believe that Blood Raven might want to spare Theon for that reason, because Martin has Theon think about Euron and specifically about the Crow's eye.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, and I uh I, I really hope Theon gets spared. I, I don't want to see him burning in front of the heart tree or being burned against the heart tree. I think that would be Horrifying, and and I and I also think it would also undercut uh, a little bit to um, the the shocking moment of of Stannis burning Shireen uh, in either Windsor Dream. Um, I think that having him burn Theon would kind of uh, relegate the burning of Shireen to kind of a secondary, lesser horror because the reader's already tracking on a, a sympathetic character that, or maybe not even sympathetic character, a character that they pity. Um, that they have an emotional connection to um, being being burned, and maybe that's Martin, being the writer that he is, would realize that he needs to kind of save that uh, shocking moment, that holy shit moment, in, in, according to David Benioff, uh, to kind of reserve that for one character, and that character being uh, Shireen Baratheon.
1: I agree, um, but Theon is—I mean, Theon is just a more—he's just a much more major character than Shireen, so it would feel like kind of. A step down in terms of scale. Obviously, Shireen is extremely sympathetic. It would be, still be horrifying, but to go from a, PO, a prominent POV character getting burned to a very minor non-Pov character, yeah, that would that would. I think that I think you're right. I think that would detract from the significance of the moment for sure.
0: Yep, yep. Um, but speaking of 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 children, like like Shireen. Uh, this this chapter is the the central moment of this chapter is, as we've talked about is Bran being pushed from the window of of the um, the broken tower uh, of the first keep of of Winterfell and that's that is something that has come to define one of the defining iconic moments of. The, of all of A Song of Ice and Fire really it's one of those moments that people will bring up as a a stunning moment that kind of changes how we look at fantasy but the great thing about A Song of Ice and Fire is that Jamie Lannister did nothing wrong in this scene um, by pushing Bran from the tower because you know he is a he had hit totally just reasons because he had to save his kids right and save Cersei and so he had to push Bran from the tower and so that justifies his actions, right? He's Jamie's not a bad guy, is he?
1: Well, that's, that's certainly something, as you mentioned earlier, jo- uh, George R. R. Martin has brought up. Um, he's got the, this, this uh, great quote about it here. So I've asked people who do have children, well, what would you do in Jamie's situation? They say, well, I'm not a bad guy. I wouldn't kill. Are you sure? Never. If Bran tells King Robert he's going to kill you and your sister lover and your three children... Then many of them hesitate. Probably more people than not would say, "Yeah, I would kill someone else's child to save my own child, even if that other child was innocent." These are the difficult choices people make, and they're worth examining. And that's that's absolutely true. I think Jamie is is not committing a sadistic act in this moment. He has reasons to do what he's doing. He's 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 weighing two genuinely terrible situations, and he's choosing the one that doesn't involve sacrificing people he loves. And I, and I I get that, and I appreciate that. I, I... I've never been able to quite go as far as Martin suggests in that quote, though, because, uh, you know, for me, uh, like, let's step back and examine how this situation happened, though. Like, why is it that Jamie has to push Bran? Why is it that Bran telling King Robert would lead to the deaths of Jamie and Cersei and their children? And it's because what Jamie and Cersei are doing is right. treason. Like, it's, and they know that. They, th- this is something they've known is a potential thing they'd have to do every time they've had sex. I mean, Jamie and Cersei are, are absolutely backed into a corner here, but they are the ones who backed themselves into this corner. They're not in danger because of religious persecution or class exploitation. They're in danger because they're committing a slow-motion coup. And they've presumably done so with the knowledge that they'll have to kill anyone who finds out about it. And they're not, as we've said, they're not doing a great job of hiding it. They fucked in Derry with Robert in the room, right there, sleeping. And Jamie says he would have killed Robert if he woke up. Like, that's when you're that impulsive and self-absorbed and ready for war, my sympathy starts to wane a little bit because you are the ones putting your kids at risk. You are the yes. ones. You put them at risk by conceiving them. Like, or as Tyrion says later, if Cersei had, had one kid by Robert, she could have allayed all suspicion. And I think that's not entirely fair because Robert raped Cersei repeatedly. But it, it, it brings up the point that Jamie and Cersei are are constantly creating this situation, this potential situation where they're going to have to kill someone what if what if Pate Tommen's whipping boy had walked in on them one day Jamie would probably right. kill him right probably have a much easier time getting away with it than with Bran too so I mean the motivation of the things I do for love establishes again that Jamie is, is not making a mustache twirling villain decision it's, it's not it's not it's not a cruel decision uh, but, yeah. but I don't necessarily think it alters the overall... I don't think it absolves him of responsibility because all Jamie and Cersei had to do to avoid this was not fuck. And I care more right. about Bran's ability to walk right. than their ability to fuck.
0: Yes. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I I, I think we've... I, I've said this before that Jamie is, is is my favorite point of view character in, in the story for a variety of reasons that we'll get to when we get into A Storm of Swords. Um, but this is one of those moments where... I kind of have to step back from my own admiration of Jamie and see that Jamie's being he might he might not be a sadist, but he's being a villain in this in this this portion of the story. And he's being a villain for understandable reasons. But I think that when people are like, well, you know, you have to consider the context of. Of of what if Bran talks, and, and even George saying what if Bran talks. Well the context is is that Jamie and Cersei have already done the bad deed and they've done it over and over and over and over and over again. And they have understandable reasons for doing that. Um and they have understandable reasons Jamie has understandable reasons for pushing Bran out of the window. And I and I do like that, that Jamie does it with loathing, right? He says with loathing in his voice, the things I do for love, um, meaning that he's, he's not happy with having to do this, that he hates having to do this maybe. Uh, but what does, what does Jamie say to Catelyn in Catelyn's final chapter in the clash of Kings? But, uh, why did you push my son out of the window? Well, I, I did it because he was spying on us. You know, that's, that's his, his rationale. Uh, and he's being kind of a jackass there, and he's also drunk in that in that chapter. But, but Jamie's actions here are, are are not virtuous; they're 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 evil. Um, and and I think the point that Brand's ability to walk is more important than their than Jamie and Cersei's ability to fuck is just a fantastic point. And I think that things that people should consider when they're thinking about Jamie as a character. I think that Jamie is a well-rounded. He is a fantastically written character. I think his his history. His story of of becoming the soil knight and wanting to be Arthur Dane and realizing that he was actually the smiling knight is a great and fantastic um, turn in Martin's writing. Uh, but I mean part of that arc too is a bit of is a bit of villainy in Jamie. That's why Jamie is Jamie is I, 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 Martin kind of gets this reputation for writing great characters and people cite Jamie as being one of those great characters and I would kind of agree to a greater or lesser extent. But there are elements where there where Jamie's not being gray, where Jamie is being evil. And this is one of those times where Jamie's being evil. And I and I do think that there is a sense maybe in people liking point of view characters like Jamie or, you know, to a lesser extent these days, people liking characters like Robert but liking them to the point where they kind of paper over their the bad things that they do because of their sympathies for the characters. And I think that Martin wants us as readers to draw well-rounded portraits of these guys, that good guys like Ned Stark have faults, that bad guys like Robert have good parts about themselves, but they still have the bad parts there too, that, you know, Jamie, for... All his good deeds that he does in a storm of swords, and saving Brienne from the bear pit, from deciding what his fate is going to be, to burning Cersei's letter and a feast for crows, and maintaining a bit of a flame for Brienne, and all the way through until the uh, a dance with dragons. And that's when his final chapter happens. He still has to account for the fact that he pushed Brienne out of the window. And I do think that is going to be something that we are going to see in Jaime's uh, first or second of Winter chapter when he encounters Stoneheart. I strongly believe that that will be a focal part of what will happen when Jamie is is met up with the Brotherhood without Banners, and what Catelyn Stark's accusation will be will be focusing on um, from the from the get go. And that'll be Jamie pushing Bran out the window, which was his dark one of his darkest deeds. And it was a dark deed because he was doing wrong. And, yeah, again, people who think that Jamie is justified here are, are missing the larger point about that they, that, you know, that MADU said it best, that it's, they they weren't hiding it. They were doing it fairly out in the open. Vare's little finger were well aware of it. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's... It, as as much as I I, I think for me I, I care more about the the fate of the children of Marcella Tommen and Joffrey even at that point in, the, in at this point in the story, but still, they keep doing the bad thing. They have their children right now. They know the risk to their children, and yet they keep doing it. So, guys, that's exactly Jamie's not justified here. Yeah,
1: no, he's I I get the justification in the moment, but the situation exists because of Jamie and Cersei, not because of Bran. They're the ones with right. the responsibility, and they—you know—it's—it's it's an uh, unbelievably selfish thing to do. You know, they—they are yes. they're risking, and eventually do put the realm at war. They put—they—they they create this axe over their children's heads from the moment they're born, uh, and then they—they yes. they throw Bran out the window to the cover for themselves. It's—it's, it's, yeah, it—it it flows from that from that original selfishness, and it's—it's it's difficult for me to have sympathy given that overall context. And I think, yeah, Jamie's a very sad character in a lot of ways. Uh, I really feel for him about the Arthur Dane versus Smiling Knight thing, especially because Arthur Dane didn't turn out to be quite as great as Jamie thought he was. None of the Kings card were. No. And, but yeah, you, you only get to be a gray character if you have a lot of black there, you know, you have to have he's mm. you have, you have to have both sides and Jamie does have right. of, of a lot of, a lot on both. But you know, like we were saying earlier, Jamie is very specifically what Bran wants to be. Like he's he's the image and he's betraying that at a fundamental level and that that's really telling for a guy whose story is all about wanting to be a knight and then having his dreams and that idealized image dash. Like he's doing it to other people. He did, he, what, what was done to him, he's doing to Bran. What was done to him, he did to Lancel. There's that unbelievably yeah. poignant moment in the in the Sept of Dairy when Lancel says, Seven save me, I want it to be you. And Jamie yeah. realizes, oh my God, Arthur Dane was like this mirage for me, and I was that for Lancel. So yes. it's, it's the, the cycle—he hasn't broken the wheel, to to borrow a phrase from the show. He has not. He, <laughs> I, I, I feel for him in terms of his horror at the the injustice of the system he thought he could believe in, and I applaud him for his attempt to to defy that by killing Eris. But ultimately he hasn't ultimately he's he's played his part he's played the same part that the people who broke him played and um, and I, I feel a lot of I feel a lot of sadness for him in terms of having those those dreams dashed and feeling really empty uh, I re- yeah. I, re- I do feel for him in a lot of respects in terms of his relationship with Cersei, because he clearly cares far more about it than she does and has much more invested in her than she does in him emotionally um, mm-hmm and he made big decisions because of that relationship as a, as a young person uh, that have had a huge impact on his life, a huge negative impact oh gosh, on his yeah. life. And you know that's that's all very wretched, but <laughs> no, not even but that's that's all very wretched. And also, I ultimately hold him responsible for this, and and I don't, I can't, I can, I can understand the, the moral calculus, and that it's not an evil or cruel decision. But I, but I, but I would, but I would still chop off his head for it. I would, I would chop off his head for it with, with a firm, uh, sympathetic nod. I'd look him in the eye. I'd hear his last words. All, all the good Stark stuff. I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't kill him slowly. But yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, I, I agree. So, if you think that Jamie was morally justified in pushing Bran out of the window, your theory is bad. You are ugly. And Emma and I both agree that Jamie's head should be chopped off for what he did. Thank you for listening to us.
1: Oh, uh, Natalie's gonna kill us!
0: Yes, great. I can't wait. I'm gonna get like a bunch of exclamation points and, and a DM on Twitter or on Slack. So it's gonna be great. I Can't wait. I <laughs> Can't wait. So, so uh, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. I was
1: gonna. No, I think we're about to both about to say. I think that about wraps it up.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do. It's. Uh, Man, this is a a pleasure going mm-hmm. through this chapter with you. That was um, a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. So if if you guys are, um, so this this podcast is is about a little over two hours in, in length, and uh, we really appreciate you guys listening to us. But uh, that's not all we have in store for you this week. Oh no, we have a one more episode coming your way. We probably should have mentioned it at the beginning of this episode, but. It's fine. I don't think anybody would really matter, care that much. Uh, we have our special Patreon episode that's coming your guys' way uh, on Wednesday. So in two days after this release date, you'll be hearing about why we think A Dance with Dragons is the better book than A Storm of Swords. It is a fantastic, freewheeling conversation that goes on for, I'm not even joking, like three hours, man. So you're going to get five hours of not a Cast. Uh, this week and uh, just as another sort of little um, tidbit for you guys or, or um, appetizer we have a special guest coming on that is Michael aka Bookshelf Stud from the Maester Monthly Podcast and a uh, another Song of Ice and Fire Luminary who's a fantastic writer and uh, podcast was a guest host with us and yeah I think you guys are really going to like it yeah,
1: it was a lot of fun to talk with Michael, he's definitely one of my favorite people in the fandom, we, we delved deep into both books, we had a great time, so uh, definitely great first, first guest appearance, one of many great ones to come, and also the one of many great special episodes to come, because of course we were doing that episode as kind of a sample of the special episodes we're going to have as part of our Patreon. Uh, If you uh, enlist in most of the Patreon reward tiers, you get to hear these special episodes that we'll be doing. So if you're interested in that, you can go check out our uh, patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F. That's going to go live on April 1st, uh, but we swear it's not a joke. Um, (laughs) So uh, check that out if you're interested in becoming a supporter and you get uh, special episodes, you get access to our show notes, you get early releases, a lot of great things you can check out on that site.
0: Yeah, so it's, again, but if you guys Don't want to contribute to it, that's no worries we'll, We're happy to just be chatting with you guys Two bros chatting About A Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter a week um, But yeah, it's, it's it's a real pleasure um, Doing this and, and getting you guys Feedback, and uh, you know, if you have The opportunity and and, and chance You know, we we have a, we, we might do this next week, we've got a number Of really fantastic reviews on, on iTunes especially But um, We might try and feature some of the some of the, the ones that we see on there So if you're uh, interested uh, Leave us a review on iTunes Or I guess it's now it's Apple Play Or something like that I don't know anymore uh, wh- Whatever they're calling it Whatever you're getting your podcast on Leave us a review uh, Drop us a link where you left your review And we'll try and uh, take a look at it and Make it funny And you might even be featured on next week's episode Which is all about uh, our first point of view chapter From the point of view of Tyrion Lannister who is George R. R. Martin's favorite point of view character
1: yeah, we, like I said, we got our first glimpse of the Lannister side of things in this chapter, but now we got our first Lannister POV, so that really uh, ramps up our understanding of the Lion Clan. Uh, so you can, of course, as always, find us on social media, uh, at notacastasoyif on Twitter, and our email is notacastasoyif at com. You can find me at portquentin.tumblr.com or at portquentin on Twitter.
0: And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, and you can find my site at wars and politics of ice and fire. Kind of a mouthful, but you can find me there.
1: So thanks, thanks as always for listening, and we'll, we'll see you next week with Tyrion. See you guys. Bam.
0: Not A Cast Podcast is written and recorded by Lord Clinton and Brendan Beefish. And the music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, And the closing song is called A Last Goodbye. Thanks everyone for listening and we will see you guys in just a few days if you want to listen to our Dance with Dragons episode. See you then and I'll see you guys next week.